Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. The Ford F-150 truck drives smart design forward. The standard 12-inch productivity screen helps you get what you need done too. And the available pro-access tailgate improves access to bed and cargo and utilization of the bed, including when towing a trailer. Together with a wider bumper step, it's easier to access the bed and load in tight spaces. An available ProPower onboard serves as a mobile power source, providing up to 7.2 kilowatts of power to charge a bed full of electric dirt bikes or run an entire job site worth of tools. I'm still driving my 2016 F-150 truck and 90,000 miles in. As long as I keep it clean, it honestly still looks brand new. I've taken it down snow-covered forest service roads, taken it out camping, put a ton of miles on it on the freeway, had five adults in the cabin for long trips, and it's been great everywhere. Super dependable. I still love the way it looks, nice and rugged design, but with a super comfortable interior. And I'm still very happy with the quality sound system and heated seats. And since I bought my 2016 F-150 truck, the list of standard amenities that make a truck feel like a luxury vehicle have only grown. Tough this smart can only be called F-150. Find your local Ford dealer at Ford.com. Pro access tailgate available starting spring 2024. See owner's manual for important operating instructions. Have you ever thought about disappearing? It's thought many of us occasionally have a seductive fantasy that life would be so much better if we simply started over somewhere else, reinvented ourselves, began a new life. For many of us, these kind of fantasies provide a totally normal, temporary and consequence-free relief from everyday stresses like bills, mortgages, student loans, interpersonal conflict, raising kids, etc. Emphasis on fantasies here. Very few of us actually do try and start an entirely new life. For the very few of us to go for it, though, what an enduring mystery it can create for the rest of us. Right? They did it. They actually did it. We're so curious, so intrigued. Why did they do it? Where did they go? How did they manage to pull it off? Who else was in on it, if anyone? Were they simply lucky, super smart, especially devious, courageous, some combination of the above? Every once in a while, we get these questions answered. When the mystery gets resolved, the person shows back up. Other times, the reappearance just adds further layers of mystery. And then there's another kind of mysterious disappearance. There are people who don't choose to disappear, uh, but for some reason they just do. Maybe mental illness, amnesia, uh, perhaps something else entirely. Maybe something paranormal. Or at least we wonder about the paranormal, which can be terrifying. We wonder if they could just up and disappear. Could that same thing happen to us? Is the hold we have on our lives maybe not as strong as we think? Can crazy shit, just weird, unexplainable, mysterious shit just happen to us at any time? Right? QX files or Twilight Zone music. As if the known dangers of the world around us aren't scary enough. We're going to cover all kinds of disappearance stories this week as our proud, noble, curiosity-guiding Patreon space lizards have chosen to suck on the topic of mysterious disappearances and equally mysterious reappearances. Though some stories we'll cover here today will include only disappearances and some speculation as to where those people may have gone and why. We're taking a deep dive into the many reasons why someone might one day just up and vanish. From amnesia, to avoiding a shady past, to trying to make some money off insurance claims... From stories of disappearances, both ancient and modern, we'll see that we meet sacks, have a long history of envisioning what our lives might be like if, well, they were different lives altogether, and then acting on these uh, thoughts. 
We'll look at some tales of Nazis who escaped from Germany to South America, uh, some of whom were found by Nazi hunters and secret services, people who have maybe tried to disappear but played it off as amnesia when they were found, and even more mysterious people who simply just left for no apparent reason. We are a strange species, and an incredibly determined and innovative species sometimes. Even in our modern society, where it seems impossible to have not left a trace in some form, search histories, text messages, GPS data, etc., some of us are still finding ways to mysteriously disappear. How? Well, sometimes because you met someone who's made a career out of circumventing modern technology and helping others disappear. We're going to cover that side of things, too. So many fascinating stories on today's strange, ancient, and modern, explained and unexplainable. Where the hell did they go and how the hell can we not find them? Mysterious disappearances and reappearances edition of Time Suck. This is Michael McDonald, and you're listening to Time Suck. You're listening to Time Suck. Happy Monday, Meat Sacks. Welcome to the Cult of the Curious. I'm Dan Cummins, the master sucker, suck nasty, Papa John's marketing director, Meat Sack Meat Taste Tester, and you are listening to Time Suck. Hail Nimrod, hail Lucifina, praiseable Jangles, and where are you, Triple M? Don't mysteriously disappear on us. Uh, happy 4th of July. Fucking nailed this holiday. Actually got it on time. Uh, just two quick announcements, and then so much mystery. Celebrate our recent episode 300 by dropping acid until you mysteriously disappear. Or just check out the new Space Cowboy collection in the store. Uh, featuring three new shirts inspired by the 300th asset episode. Uh, we've got the many faces of Dan T, uh, AI-generated faces using input queries like hallucinate, dream, <laughs> nightmare. Also, the uh, I forgot how to whistle tea, a fun illustration of the moment I began my journey. And we also have the Space Cowboy uh, tea and mug featuring a still from the episode where I realized that words would no longer hold their shape. Fun episode. I can't wait to see what uh, episode 400 brings. Maybe a really sweet topic, like a really nice topic covered with a, a head full of Molly. You guys, can, you guys can watch me cry so much. Or uh, maybe just smoke some weed. Uh, I have to think about, uh, you know, what will feel the most entertaining at the time. Maybe totally sober for the first half, followed by a friend asking me questions at the end about what I just covered while I'm out of my mind on something. For now, head on over to uh, badmagicmerch.com. Check out this hilarious collection. Uh, now for uh, our July charity. In light of recent mass shootings, we wanted to donate to the victims of mass casualties, and we decided to donate to the National Compassion Fund. Uh, their mission is to give funds to the victims of mass casualty crimes, such as mass shootings and terrorist attacks. Donation amount, TBD. Uh, in the meantime, if you'd like to donate or learn more, learn more, uh, please visit nationalcompassion.org. I don't claim to know exactly how to prevent more tragedies. Wish I, wish I, wish I knew that. Uh, that would be discussion for a different uh, podcast topic in another day also. But I do know that the victims and families can always use our help. And now on to a topic that is uh, less of a topic and more of a pretty broad category with lots of stories within it to curate into some form of an interesting episode. Last week's episode was so much easier story structure-wise, right? Plane goes up, plane goes down. People get hungry. Some people get eaten. Some people work really, really hard to stay alive. Built-in intrigue, easier narrative. Papa John's. I promise I won't beat that stupid gag to death this week. <laughs> that, was, that was it. It's, it's done. I think it's done. Uh, and talking about mysterious disappearances, there's so many reasons as to why someone would disappear. Right? Political reasons, crime-related reasons, mental illness, amnesia. Uh, it's impossible to say that one disappearance is like any other. Added to that fact uh, is that for many of these, we just don't know all or most or even much of the information. Whether it's because the person who disappeared truly can't remember it, is lying, 
or due to some other factor like bad historical record keeping. But we have plenty of uh, info for some very memorable disappearances. Some really like, how, what the hell were you thinking? And just like, I can't believe you did that. On uh, today's episode, we'll cover a lot of these different kinds of stories. But first, we'll spend some time just talking about how and why people disappear, like how much harder it is to disappear in the modern age of technology and why disappearing seems to have been a compelling urge for a variety of meat sacks uh, throughout all of human history. Then we'll dive into our categories of disappearance stories, covering political disappearances, uh, disappearances due to amnesia or mental illness. Those are fucking terrifying to me. A uh, crime and fraud and people who, for some reason, just wanted to get away from it all, said fuck it, and then just did just that. And then we'll take one last look at the people who tried to disappear but failed miserably. In terms of structure, this episode will be more of a series of vignettes, sort of like our episodes on Greek or Norse or Egyptian or Celtic mythology, but without all those fucking torturous god names and super confusing god monster, how much acid were they dropping when they thought this shit up things? No gods or supernatural beings today, just mostly uh, silly goose humans. Old dingling meat sacks, gosh dang. Uh, Humans who either seemed unnaturally determined to reinvent their lives or to completely fuck up their lives or to forget their lives, et cetera, et cetera. And sometimes there is no explanation for what the hell happened to some of the humans we'll be talking about. Uh, Truly a, a mystery. So let's get into it. Because of the highly connected world we now live in, it's hard to think of anyone ever truly disappearing, isn't it? I mean, it is for me. Sure, it might have been possible in the 1800s or really any century before that, you know, when telephones, security cameras, uh, digital footprint were now constantly generating all the time, just didn't exist. Even last week's guys were found after crashing into uh, one of the most remote areas of the Andes in 1972. I mean, they didn't just disappear. I mean, yeah, they, I mean, yeah, they wouldn't have been found alive if not for their own hard work and perseverance, but their skeletons would have been found in the summer had they not uh, made it out. Prior to the 20th century, even in the early 20th century, I think it would have been pretty easy in many ways to assume a new life if you really wanted to. And a lot of people did used to just disappear, abandon their family, just start over somewhere else. Right? Think about how things were before photographs, government-issued IDs. Right? You want to start a new life? Just fucking leave. Don't tell anyone where you're going. Tell the family you're going out for some milk and cigarettes and then just keep on walking. Just keep on driving past a store. Find some train tracks. Hop on the rails. Go on a horse and ride, right? Just keep bouncing from town to town. Change your name, the way you dress, your hairstyle. You want to take a little further, be a little more confident. You're not going to be found. Learn a new language. Make it across a, a, a border, multiple borders. Settle down in a new country. Presto, change yo. You're a new person. Invent a backstory now to keep your cover from being blown. Maybe your whole family died in a fire. Maybe they were stomped to death in a mule stampede or something. Anything. Maybe you're an orphan. Join the circus and then fled for your life after getting caught having sex with the bearded lady by her husband, the world's strongest man. Or the fucking Calliope roadie. I don't know. Whatever doesn't lead you to having to pretend to have a family that someone new in your life is going to want to meet at some point. For much of human history, if you were able to make it to a new land, maybe even just uh, one state or even one town over, and just uh, started telling people you were a different person, they had no way to verify if you were lying or telling the truth. With no public records on the internet, with no internet and no social media pages to stalk, they could never prove that you're lying. Showbiz. That's how they do it in Hollywood. You're a big-time producer spanking fat bare bottoms, eating peanut butter, right? Albert Fish did a little bit of that. Um, you used to be able to, yeah, just to start over so easily. What a, what a lucky time to be alive. Lucky bastards. I want to be honest. I think about leaving my family literally every day, uh, especially on days when I spend a lot of time with them, you know? I'll be shooting hoops with my son, Kyler, playing, uh, you know, catch with a softball with my daughter, Monroe, and it just, 
It takes everything I have not to just turn and run. Maybe throw the ball as hard as I can. And then when they turn and run to get it, I turn and run in the opposite direction. And I just keep running and running and running until I collapse. And then I hide and then I get up and run again. And I just keep running, right? Throw away my cell phone, uh, ID, uh, everything. Just hide out in the woods, sneak into someone's house at some point, use their iron to, to burn off my fingertips, right? So I don't have fingerprints anymore. F- I find a cave or something to hide in, uh, live off eating bugs and berries, uh, drink creek water. Uh, risk blowing my butthole off with some kind of horrible stomach virus. Just just go feral, you know? I'm not saying that would be easy living, but anything would be better than staying with my family, right? You get it. I mean, have you ever seen videos of my wife, Lindsay? Holy fuck. Sometimes when we've been out to dinner and she goes to the bathroom, I just get up and I start to leave. I just haven't had the courage yet, you know, just to get my truck and just fucking drive, man. Just drive anywhere she can't find me. Just drain our savings, head to Mexico with a suitcase full of cash, buy a small shack in some little off-the-grid, tiny-ass village, live on guava juice and chicken tacos and cocaine and just not have to fucking hear her talk anymore, you know? Just live somewhere, anywhere, where I'm not constantly thinking, would you shut the fuck up, right? Somewhere I, I just don't have to also look at these two stupid, really ugly dogs all the time and just feel sad about having to own them. Why are my dogs so fucking ugly? Why does God hate me? God, I'd love to wake up in bed and just not see Penny and Gigi's stupid fucking faces anymore. Go wag your tail somewhere else. You good for nothing parasites that contribute nothing to our family. JK. <laughs> if, you, if, if you don't know, I, I uh, co-host another podcast, Scared to Death, my wife, Lindsay. And I love her. And I love my kids. And I love my fluffy little squeeze of weasels. That was just fun for me to do. Just imagine a, a brand new listener hearing this podcast for the first time. And maybe start, maybe at first thinking that I was kidding. And then after a while, just be like, Jesus Christ, man. Yeah, they can hear this, you selfish prick. Anyway, uh, let's go over. That was fun, at least for me. Let's go over a, a few people disappearing and reappearing uh, back when that was easier to do. For an example of just how easy it was to reinvent yourself prior to last century, we have to look no further than the strange story of A.V. Lamartine. This guy ran a whole scam over and over based on uh, some reinvention. In the spring of 1859, A.V. Lamartine, or at least a man going by the, sounds like a made-up name of A.V. Lamartine, uh, would walk into a hotel, according to various newspaper accounts from Salem, Oregon, across the country to Richmond, Virginia, and many other places in between, and appear very depressed as he requested a, uh, a room. Once settled in, he'd ring a bell for assistance, and when someone would arrive, Lamartine would point to an empty bottle on the table labeled two ounces of laudanum and call for a clergyman, right? People later rushing to his bedside to help him once word of this got out would, would find a suicide note. Then these people thinking they were about to save a man on death's door would summon a doctor, administer medicine to induce vomiting, nurse him, uh, you know, back to health as he recovered because he wasn't actually sick. And then finally, weirdly enough, uh, they'd give him money and would con them into thinking if he was only given a little help, he'd finally have a life worth living. At some point over the course of his manipulative life, Lamartine realized this scam was a cash cow. No one knows if someone taught him the scam or if he came up with it himself. But somewhere he learned the strange grift and he disappeared and reappeared time and time again to keep pulling this shit off. Over and over, as one Brooklyn reporter explained, he is restored with difficulty and sympathetic people raise a purse for him and he departs. In this way, Lamartine was making his way across Ohio, raising 25 bucks in Dayton, 40 bucks in Sandusky, etc. Always departing according to a later newspaper account from Ohio, with a free pass on the railroad to attempt suicide at some other place. Dude lived a life of manipulating the kindness of strangers for his financial gain, using nothing more than a, than a bottle and a label 
And as far as I know, he was never caught, never outed for being a dirtbag. The days of pulling off a a scam like this, at least in most uh, first world countries, at least over and over, might be gone for the time being. At the very least, it's way harder now. Nowadays, with so much technology, you can't just keep uh, reappearing as a a (laughs) scam artist, whatever, over and over again like that. With companies monitoring how we uh, spend time online, with our GPS technology embedded in the many apps we use every day, the ability to track credit card purchases, dig through someone's online history, figure out what they were thinking, almost impossible to hide from people who really want to find you. But it's still something many of us think about. Dr. Ziev Levin, uh, a New York University, NYU psychiatrist and professor who specializes in uh, personality disorders, actually says this is a pretty widespread impulse. He's quoted in the Elizabeth Greenwood book, Playing Dead, A Journey Through the World of Death Fraud, as saying, there's this fantasy that many of us have that if we move to a different place, our lives would be different. It's not unusual for people to say that uh, things are terrible in New York. So if I move to Australia, things would be better. I think there are universal fantasies we have about wishing we were somewhere else and someone else. Taken to an absolute extreme, erasing your life assumes you will then be reborn as something different. If I died while I was alive, I could come back as something other. Dr. Levin sees a tendency of avoidance disguised as a daydream of starting a new life as an evolutionary trick that prevents us from confronting and examining the uglier parts of ourselves. He says we are structurally designed to not want to look at what's upsetting. What an interesting thought. I want to repeat what he said there. I really like that. We are structurally designed to not want to look at what's upsetting. You can apply that to so many things. Why do people stay in abusive relationships? Uh, Why do people make incredibly self-destructive life choices and then seem to refuse to learn from them and repeat their mistakes? Why do some people blame everyone else when clearly the problem is them? In many cases, because they don't want to look at what's upsetting. They they don't want to get introspective, examine aspects of themselves that might make them feel weak or stupid or selfish or cruel, etc. So much easier to avoid and to escape. At least it can seem easier. As you'll see today, uh, even when people get away with, uh, uh, you know, uh, disappearing for years, for decades, you know, with escaping their old lives and starting new ones, they often get caught eventually and really have to pay the piper. The vast majority of people looking to start over in some sense don't actually literally disappear though. They don't take it to that extreme of a place. They may make lifestyle changes and decide to become a new me, but they don't actually become a new person. Uh, Lucky for us with uh, this episode's subject matter for entertainment value, some do take it to a very extreme place though. Every year, people all around the world do actually make the decision to just walk out the door with no plan sometimes to return, uh, no desire to ever be found by anyone in their current circle of family, Co-workers, acquaintances, and friends. The exact number of people who do this, of course, is not known. You have to take the number of missing people in the U.S. and then figure out what percentage of them are missing intentionally. On average, 90,000 people are missing in just the United States at any time. How many of those people are not dead, not being held against their will somewhere, not in some drug-induced stupor or haze of amnesia or mental illness, but are instead happy to be missing, right? They wanted to be missing. How many have successfully disappeared and then reinvented themselves somewhere else? Is someone, uh, you know, uh, listening right now? One of those people, I wonder. According to one 2003 British study, two-thirds of missing adults make a conscious decision to leave. Is the percentage really that high? That's fucking crazy. Applying that to the U.S. number of missing people, could up to 60,000 U.S. citizens not actually be who they say they are? Or, I mean, I guess it doesn't always have to be a reinvention, but they just left intentionally their lives? Ever met someone who you suspect is not who they say they are? Ever found that out about anyone? 
I, I, I encountered two people kind of like that earlier in my life. I met two mysterious comics in Salt Lake City around 15 years ago when I was working the Wise Guys Comedy Club in West Valley pretty often. Uh, Blake Bard uh, was one guy's what he went by and another guy named Alex. It wasn't his real name either, but we thought it was. Uh, can't remember his, his fake last name. Uh, a few years after meeting Blake, I found out that his real name was Curtis. Didn't find out his last name. Uh, and I don't even know if Curtis actually was his real name. You know, he said, oh, actually, my real name's Curtis, but I don't even know if that's true. Blake was a stage name, and he was one mysterious dude. You didn't really know about his life outside of, you know, the comedy world. He wouldn't, you know, share a lot. You'd just kind of keep it vague. And you, and, you, and you could tell he was doing that. No one seemed to have met any of his non-comedy friends or his family uh, or have even, like, you know, been to his house. And he hung around the scene for probably, I don't know, about five years. And then one day, just vanished, just poof, was gone. And you couldn't find any info about him online. And that was also weird. He didn't have social media accounts, you know, when those were starting to get going. Uh, I hung out with him a ton of times, uh, as did several other comics I still stay in touch with. No one knows where he went. Might have died, just might be somewhere else, living under a different name. The other guy, Alex, crazier story, uh, he vanished after local comics found out he was not who he claimed to be. He said he was some guy in his mid-20s. I remember, uh, you know, I saw him several times. He would do guest sets. I'd watch him, you know, do his jokes. There were, he had some good jokes. Uh, used to do the open mic at, uh, you know, Wise Guys when it was in the West Valley, probably weekly. And then he started dating a local comic in her early 20s. They dated for a few months. And then one day she came across something. It's been a while. I can't remember exactly. I think maybe an ID, piece of mail, different name than his name. Led to a bunch of questions that eventually led to her finding out that he was not who he said he was, uh, not as, as old as he said he was. He wasn't in his uh, 20s. He was in his early 40s. I will say that he didn't look like he uh, was in his 20s. I even questioned him about his uh, age once. Uh, I was like, come on, man. And he uh, said he had some kind of vague condition that made him look older. Must have gotten nervous when I brought up his age. Uh, once exposed for being an imposter, he just vanished. Didn't want to answer people's you know questions and never seen again, never heard from again by any local comics as far as I know. No one I've talked to in the years since has any clue where he went. Both Blake and Alex, whoever they really were, did they just enjoy being able to uh, be someone new in a local comedy scene? I can see the, how there would be a thrill to that. Make strangers think you're, you're someone you wished you were instead of who you are. I still wonder sometimes, you know, uh, who, who, they, who they are or were in real life. Strange, right? Uh, you can still legally change your name in most nations. That's a good way to kind of like reinvent yourself somewhere. Uh, get a new name, new ID, credit cards that match that name, move to a different area, open up a new social media profile or profiles. You can probably trick a lot of people for a long time. You know, unless some PI comes looking for you, unless you're really hiding from something, some kind of legal ramifications or some kind of stalker or, you know, somebody you've abandoned or something, unless you slip up and reveal yourself, I mean, who's going to find out? It's all bullshit. So maybe not so hard to disappear today in some ways, you know, depending on your circumstances. And how many people may currently be doing just that in the U.S., right? Is the number anywhere close to 60,000? I mean, I doubt it. But even if it's 1,000, 2,000, 3,000, that's still weird. The problem with determining any reliable statistics regarding this is that in general, for those who consciously decide to leave their old lives, the public will only hear about the failures, the ones who get caught. We have no idea what the success rate is. Uh, since the Coalition Against Insurance Fraud, a national alliance of consumer groups, public interest organizations, government agencies, and insurers, began keeping records in 1990, 564 cases of life insurance fraud have been reported, right? So we know at least, uh, you know, uh, over 500 people have tried to fake their own death. Uh, this average out to roughly 23 cases per year to get flagged. Not exactly an epidemic, but two dozen industrious people faking their deaths, getting uh, caught every year, speaks to a lot of folks with equal parts drive, greed, and poor planning skills. 
And then there are the one with good planning skills, right? The ones we don't hear about. How many uh, of those are there? How many people actually do successfully fake their own deaths every year? How many people each year successfully disappear intentionally without the desire to commit insurance fraud? It's almost impossible to say. So let's turn to another question. Why do these people disappear intentionally? People go missing, do so with an endless variety of motives from what uh, we might call good to bad, pure to impure intentions. Some are running from their own transgressions, Ponzi schemers, bail jumpers, deadbeat parents, insurance scammers dreaming of a life in a tropical paradise where they don't have to work. Uh, There are those who are involved in crime. The federal government's witness security program provides new identities for endangered high profile witnesses. But thousands of other people who testify in lower profile cases, they're out on their own to face potential retribution or flee to a new safer identity. But many people who abandon their lives do so uh, for non-criminal reasons, relationship breakups, family pressures, financial obligations, or just a, a simple desire for reinvention. And then there are the people trying to escape the unwanted attention of stalkers, obsessive ex-spouses, uh, psychotically disgruntled clients or employees. And for many of these people, though not all, it seems to be that they truly feel like their lives are separated between before and after, like they're a completely new identity once they go into hiding. Uh, As I mentioned earlier, the human impulse to leave it all behind and start over is apparently very old. I imagine this going back to caveman, cavewoman days, right? Grog fucks up, gets caught shitting where the tribe collects their their drinking water or I don't know, uh, fucking Chief Ugg's wife. Maybe accidentally burns an important idol that represents the tribe's god of uh, sustenance or something. And then off he goes to try and find a new clan of cave people to live with rather than be beaten to death with clubs. And now he is Grug. No, who's Grog? I'm Grug. Last of my tribe. Damn saber-toothed tigers. Wiped out everyone else. Oh, what a bummer. Okay, let's get into some documented history now. Let's talk about some historical disappearances, some ancient ones. A story from the Talmud. Uh, Talmud, the central text of rabbinic Judaism and the primary source of Jewish religious law and Jewish theology written between 200 and 500 CE features Rabbi Yohanan ben Zakkai uh, faking his death so that he can escape Jerusalem during the Jewish rebellion against the Romans in the first century CE. Pretend you are sick and let everyone come to visit you. Bring something rotten and place it with you, and they will say you died. Right? Faking death. But a lot of people used to disappear back then, reappear. Some revolts brewing, some new crazy-ass kings in power. Time to bounce, time to rebuild your life in a new kingdom. Okay, now speeding way up to the 17th century, a life on the high seas would give many the opportunity to disappear as pirates, such as Jaquote de la High, assuming Jaquote uh, was a real person. Some think her story is just folklore. Uh, let's assume it's true for today. Uh, Jaquote was born in modern-day Haiti around 1600 CE, and according to legend, orphaned as a young girl left to take care of her disabled brother. And then she was like, fuck my brother, not my problem, and turned to piracy. Not so sure about the fuck my brother part, but she did suppose he turned to piracy. In partnership with another female criminal, Anne uh, Dulavoux, a.k.a. Anne God Wants It, from France. I love Anne God Wants It. That's interesting. Uh, she put together a little ragtag crew and targeted small boats, plundering their treasure. That didn't sit well with other pirates. Soon a price was put on her head in a bid to get them off their uh, back, while at the same time escaping the authorities, Jaquote faked her own death. And then Jaquote tried to pass herself off, uh, herself off as a man, allegedly did so for several years. However, her striking beauty, flowing bright red hair, eventually gave her away. And then and now she became known as Back from the Dead Red. Pretty cool pirate nickname. Uh, quickly returned to leading hundreds of outlaws and dozens of boats. She supposedly even managed to establish a free Buddha Republic, taking over a small Caribbean island. And it was there, so the legend goes, where she died defending her pirate utopia from attackers. All right, so maybe she existed. Now let's look at someone who was uh, definitely real. 
may have faked her death to disappear and then reappear. Rumors have long suggested that Emperor uh, of Russia, Alexander I, Tsar of Russia, staged his death in 1825, became a holy man, Fyodor Kuzmich, also known as Fyodor Tomsky. A theory was that he wanted forgiveness for any role he may have played in the assassination of his father, Pavel I, in 1801, or in benefiting from the work of others in slaying the Tsar. Alexander died December 1st, 1825, at the age of 47. He contracted a cold, which developed into typhus, from which he died in the southern city of Taganrog. Or did he? The monk, uh, something he became, appeared in the Siberian city of Tomsk in 1837. Many wondered exactly what his backstory was, kept it mysterious, and then lived there until his death in 1864. A famous Russian writer, Leo Tolstoy, would write, Even when monk Fyodor Kuzmich was alive, he came to Siberia in 1836 and lived for 27 years in various places there. There were strange rumors about him, that he was hiding his real name and position, and that it was Emperor Alexander I. After the monk's death, these rumors only spread and became stronger. Not only common people believed them, but many from the elite, including the royal family of Tsar Alexander III. The reasons for these rumors were the following. Alexander died unexpectedly. He did not suffer from any disease before. He died far away from home in a remote place of Taganrog. And when he was put in the coffin, many who saw him said that he changed a lot. This is why the coffin was quickly sealed. Back to Kuzmich and why he was uh, thought to be Alexander. First of all, the monk's height and appearance, so much like the emperor's. Uh, The people, especially servants who confirmed Kuzmich was Alexander, who saw Alexander or his portraits have found them really identical. The age was the same. Same kind of round shoulders. This is still Tolstoy here, speculation. Secondly, this Kuzmich, who used to say that he was a homeless man who does not remember his family, knew foreign languages and was in a noble way gentle with others, which clearly meant that he was the person with a high position in society. Thirdly, the monk never told his name and position to anyone, but sometimes he clearly behaved in a way that he was higher than other people. Fourthly, before his death, he destroyed some papers, but one sheet remained. It was a coded message signed with initials A and P, which supporters of this theory see as standing for Alexander Pavlovich, his full name. Fifthly, despite all of his faith, he never fasted. When an archpriest tried to persuade him to follow his duty of a believer, he said, If I had not confessed the truth about myself, the heavens would have been surprised. If I had confessed it, the earth would have been surprised. Sixthly, uh, he had the same unusually and majestically taut scrotum of the czar. His testicle carriage was widely known to be completely wrinkled and blemish-free and beautiful to behold. His chicken skin duffel bag had been a national treasure. What was the chance that this mysterious monk could also possess a hairy berry basket as perfect and smooth as Alexander's? And of course, he didn't say that sixth part. I just wanted an excuse to say chicken skin duffel bag. That really makes me smile. (laughs) Whoever came up with that, well done. Uh, This connection between Tsar and Monk uh, could have uh, all been gossip and speculation, but new analysis by Svetlana uh, Semyonova, president of Russian Graphological Society, suggests strong similarities between the handwritings of Alexander I and the mysterious Monk. Possible that science could soon confirm that the two men were one and the same. That a Russian Tsar, without leaving Russia, really did mysteriously disappear and then reappear under a new identity. Uh, if you weren't famous like a czar, pretty easy to fake your own death in the 1800s, uh, as easy as placing an obituary uh, in the local newspaper. One woman took advantage of how easy this was to get back at a boyfriend and some woman she thought uh, he was fond of. In 1879, 21-year-old Ida M. Eddy placed her own obituary in two Boston-area newspapers. 
saying she had died of heart disease, replete with lurid details of belabored breathing and coughing up blood. Then on the morning of the obituary's publication, she furiously called up the newspaper, called him out for not fact-checking her death. She was very much alive. Ida then falsely accused Jenny Bessem of writing her obituary. Ida said she'd organized a subterfuge because a young man had transferred his affections from Miss Ida Eddy to Miss Jenny Bessem and that the former had since endeavored to win him back by composing malicious forged letters written to herself, purporting to have come from the latter. Basically, Ida made Jenny look like a huge homewrecker, let her boyfriend think that she was dead for a couple of hours, when it was easy to make people think that you were dead. Uh, But then she got in trouble. When police investigated the story, they found the animus of the whole affair appears to have been a desire to destroy Miss Bessem's reputation. And then Ida admitted to the hoax and was fined a whole hundred bucks. Uh, Despite it being easy to fake your own death, a lot of people still used to get caught for being a little too lazy about the whole situation. You need to probably keep a low profile for a while. Uh, Move far away if you want people to keep thinking you're dead. In 1913, French police investigated the strange case of a wealthy contractor who'd built numerous Mediterranean-style mansions dotting the Riviera. The contractor's son, a Parisian playboy, had run up steep debts in his father's name. If my son Kyler ever somehow runs up steep debts in my name, he better disappear. And around the time debt collectors came for the money, this guy just happened to die. His heart gave out. The contractor's obituary ran in the local paper. A funeral procession departed from his gigantic villa, Star of the Sea, and marched to the village cemetery, where his empty coffin was buried. A few months later, a friend spotted the contractor alive and well, crossed the street in Cairns. Other reported sightings, uh, other reported sightings came from uh, Nice, another uh, place along the uh, Mediterranean coast of France. When authorities announced that they planned to dig up the coffin, a villager came forward and said uh, he'd got instructions for the funeral from the contractor, that nobody would be found, the whole thing was bullshit. Dude almost pulled it off. Maybe should have moved out of the area, right? Uh, you know, maybe if you're going to fake your own death, uh, don't stick around so close. Don't be so public. In addition to going over numerous additional intentional disappearances, like the ones we just mentioned today, we'll go into uh, more going forward uh, in more depth, uh, disappearances planned and carried out. What about people not willingly walking out of their lives, but instead forgetting who they are, forgetting who they were? People disappearing without realizing that they were walking out of their former lives thanks to amnesia or memory loss. Disassociative amnesia is a terrifying condition uh, which a person cannot remember important information about their life. This forgetting may be limited to certain specific areas like a thematic or may include much if not all of the person's life history and or identity, a a general amnesia. In some rare cases called disassociative fugue, a subtype of disassociative amnesia, the person may forget most or all of their personal information, name, personal history, friends, may sometimes even travel to a different location, adopt a completely new identity. I wonder how close I came a few weeks back uh, on acid to wandering off into a new life where I introduced myself to people as a, as a space cowboy with a whistling handicap. Uh, according to the Cleveland Clinic, great healthcare system, instances of disassociative amnesia are rare. It affects about 1% of men and 2.6% of women in the general population. And uh, those were not reassuring numbers to come across. Like when I heard rare, I was hoping for way fucking smaller, like one in a million or something. One out of every hundred dudes coming down with this, two to three out of every hundred women. That sounds way too common. Uh, Luckily, instances of amnesia can last anywhere from minutes to hours to days, weeks, months, years. Uh, Rare cases, they can be permanent. But oftentimes, uh, you don't have to start a whole new life. Most of the time, not permanent or even long lasting. Memories will return gradually uh, or suddenly. And that makes me feel better. Uh, Losing your memories and identity permanently. I mean, hopefully that is more like a one in a million or one in 50 million, 100 million, some kind of thing occurrence. Uh, what I found even more surprising with disassociative amnesia 
than how common it is, is that it's not often triggered by head injuries. I mean, a massive head injury can for sure lead to permanent amnesia, general amnesia where your brain is damaged in a way you just can't access memories or identity. Emotional shock or trauma though, such as being a victim of a violent crime, that is generally what causes disassociative amnesia. Extreme stress can trigger it. And that is fucking concerning. I don't like that at all. That you can possibly stress yourself out so much that in some kind of rare defense mechanism mode, your brain is like, nope, fuck this. Way too stressful to be Tony from Peoria right now. Middle-aged general contractor with overdue loan bills coming out of his ass, nine kids and three ex-wives. No, thank you. Let's try being Madison from Savannah, a teenage Instagram model with a banging OnlyFans account. Now, obviously an identity shift uh, is not going to work quite like that. You don't just suddenly take on a wildly different backstory you have no control of. Funny though, for me to imagine a middle-aged stressed out male general contractor doing uh, nude pictorials for his OnlyFans account as if he's a 19-year-old female Instagram model. Uh, Still, it is fucking crazy to think that a certain amount of stress can lead you to actually forgetting who you've always been, sometimes permanently. Not surprisingly, rates of disassociative amnesia tend to increase after events uh, full of lots of trauma like natural disasters and during war. And a very unfortunate French man found in Lyon, in a Lyon railway station in 1918, was unable to remember who he was, did not recognize his surroundings or recall how he had got there. One of a group of uh, 65 severely traumatized soldiers who had been returned to France by German officials, and he had no paperwork to confirm his identity. This poor bastard was shuttled between asylums, and then when hospital administrators shared his picture in newspapers in 1922, 300 different families proposed that he was their missing relative. Uh, Too many. That did not help with his fucking confusion. Psychiatrists remained unconvinced that their pleas were anything other than wishful thinking, and the man remained unidentified and unclaimed. He was finally identified 12 years after being found. Just lived as like, I don't know who the fuck I am, for a dozen years. And then in 1930, uh, he was identified as Octave Magnon, uh, but he never recovered from the trauma he suffered in the war and, and never regained his lost memory. So other people knew he was who he was, but he didn't remember who he was supposed to be, which is so sad. Uh, when it comes to unintentional disappearances, uh, mental illness often also plays a role. People struggling with serious mental illnesses like schizophrenia or anything that causes hallucinations or psychotic breaks, you know, can't always communicate their thoughts clearly or understand that others, uh, what others are saying to them. And sometimes they retreat to their minds, get lost. Others have grandiose ideas and just can't make sound judgments. Sometimes they wander too far from home or other secure surroundings. They end up homeless or missing. Usually they're found over the course of a few days, weeks, months, or years, uh, but sometimes they're never found. You might know one of these people, right? You might at least have, have seen one. Seen some, maybe someone in your neighborhood when you're, uh, you know, you've seen them uh, living on the streets, talking to people who aren't there, blatantly mentally ill. They might have, uh, they might have a family across the country that still doesn't know where they are. They might be a, 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 or have been a manager, teacher, nurse, whatever, someone stable with a good job, helping provide for the family. And then one day they had some sort of psychotic break, ended up on the streets, fell in a, with a crowd of people who introduced them to hard drugs, maybe that compounded their problems, further confused them. And maybe another day they were lucid enough to get on a bus or ride the rails with somebody. Now they're on a street corner in LA instead of back home in Toronto or someplace with no real idea of who they are, where they are, or how to take care of themselves. Instances like this are rare, but they do happen. And so sad. Sometimes these people are elderly, suffering from dementia, uh, other mental disabilities, you know, uh, Alzheimer's, something like that. And many of these cases, silver alerts can be put out to find them. A silver alert, if you don't know, is like an amber alert. Except instead of missing children, it concerns missing adults with dementia and other mental disabilities. Uh, the scope of the alert varies by state, 
most specifically uh, persons over 65 who have been medically diagnosed by a medical professional as having a mental disability are eligible for this. Some states recognize persons of any age with a mental disability under the silver alert kind of uh, mandates for their area. One of the first nationally recognized cases that laid the groundwork for this alert was the disappearance of Maddie Moore in 2004. She was a 68-year-old Alzheimer's patient from Atlanta. After Maddie's body was located eight months later, only 500 yards from her house where she disappeared, the city of Atlanta invented Maddie's call as a concentrated effort to support responders in search of missing adults with dementia. Uh, but with dementia and Alzheimer's, there's at least a prediction that something like this might happen. You can take more kind of safety precautions, keep a closer eye on loved ones, try and help ensure they don't wander off. Different story with schizophrenia, psychotic breaks, uh, sudden onsets of amnesia, especially that can happen quickly and completely unexpectedly. Uh, the Homeless and Missing Service for Persons with Mental Illness is a program within the National Alliance for the Mentally Ill that can help with these cases, a force uh, dedicated to helping find these people. A task force dedicated. Uh, if your mentally ill loved one is missing for more than three days, you should request law enforcement to enter their name onto the FBI's NCIC list as an endangered adult to begin the process of getting federal assistance to locate them. Okay, whatever the reason, avoiding punishment for a crime, amnesia, interpersonal conflict, the desire to get away, or your mind unraveling, it is still possible to disappear today. More so than I thought at the start of this suck, actually. According to Frank Ahern, one of the world's top privacy experts, and the co-author of How to Disappear, Erase Your Digital Footprint, Leave False Trails, and Vanish Without a Trace, a manual for those who want to do just that. It is still possible to disappear in the modern age. It's just very hard. Uh, Frank got his start in this industry as a skip tracer, a type of investigator that locates people and uncovers their most intimate information. Uh, There's a difference between a private investigator and a skip tracer. Uh, the the, The private investigator has to be licensed. Skip tracers uh, can extract hard-to-get information for police, PIs, lawyers, anyone else with enough cash because they don't often uh, concern themselves with pesky details such as uh, warrants or laws. I've never heard of skip tracers before one of our full-time researchers, Sophie Evans, found out about them uh, researching this topic. As a skip tracer, Frank has tracked down deadbeat dads and missing witnesses, uh, has access to checking accounts of financiers suspected of embezzling money, He's done this oftentimes by simply just calling people up and being charming, leading him to get information from high up places such as the FBI in some instances or Scotland Yard, according to him, according to him. Uh, He's accessed all kinds of privileged information by posing as someone else, providing false pretenses, such as posing as a UPS delivery man, a routine he's dubbed as pretexting. Like if a client wanted the, uh, the phone records of a cheating spouse, for example, Ahern would simply pick up the phone, call the company, pretend to be the cheating spouse himself and just ask for the call history. Well, he says it is still possible to disappear in our digital age. Faking your death and getting away with that is damn near impossible. He wrote in his book, published in 2010, if your purpose is to defraud an insurance company, there are guys who are paid to check you out, he explains. Grave robbing, finding a kid who died at a young age, that doesn't work today. 20 years ago, you could walk into a social security office and just say, I've never worked, but I just got a job and I need a card. And they would give it to you if you had fake uh, a fake birth certificate. Death records are now connected to social security records, but it didn't used to be like that. Frank explains that by faking your death, you're doubling your chances of being discovered now. When police pull you over for a broken taillight, a whole different crime could come to light. And now we're into the more involved stories with that uh, little bit of setup. Uh, This was exactly what happened. This whole taillight situation to Benny Wint. This is, uh, I love this story. I mean, this guy's a fucking idiot. Douchebag. But fascinating story. Um, Benny would have been presumed dead since staging his drowning off the coast of Daytona Beach, Florida in 1989. 
This guy was involved in a narcotics ring and he got swept up in paranoia. Believe the cops were onto him, probably just doing way too much coke. You do too much blow, you will get so paranoid. I've never done uh, nearly that much coke, but a friend of mine was doing a lot, a lot of it for a while and just got so paranoid. Uh, it was pretty funny, you know, if you're not him. Uh, just so convinced for a while that black helicopters were circling around his apartment. Uh, I mean, we walked to Starbucks. He thought black helicopters were following us. They were not. Um, he was convinced that his girlfriend was a narc trying to help the police catch him. Like, like people around him were involved in some kind of sting to take down this random user who doesn't even deal. And, you know, his dealer wanted to kill him, et cetera. Like he was just talking craziness. None of what he was saying was true. None of it made uh, any sense. It was just the Coke talking. He stopped using and then calmed way the fuck down. Uh, within a few weeks. Anyway, coked up 37-year-old Benny uh, was vacationed at the beach with his fiance Patricia Hollingsworth, and uh, probably listened to a little coke devil on his shoulder. He decided to just swim the fuck away from his life, just, <laughs> just to literally just, I'm just going to swim and just go somewhere else. He swam about a mile down the shore, <laughs> beyond the breakers, vanished from view, and he had $6,500 uh, stuffed into his swim trunks. That's all he took with him. He emerged from the water, dried off, bought a t-shirt at a nearby store. Uh, not long after, Hollinsworth reports him missing to Beach Patrol. And uh, while she's doing this, he's hitching a ride with a trucker to Ozark, Alabama. Just fucking catches a ride with a random trucker that happens to be going to Ozark. And then he just stays there. This is a little town of about 15,000 people. He opens up a business uh, selling NASCAR merchandise. And he'll be there for about tw- <laughs> for about 20 fucking years. Going by this, this random name he made up called William James Sweet. He leaves a grieving fiance behind and a young daughter, fucking deadbeat dads, starts an entirely new life. Uh, he gets married. <laughs> I don't know how he did the wedding certificate um, because he didn't get new uh, identification. He and his new wife, who really doesn't know him, they have a son uh, that he names after his alias, William James Sweet Jr. So a junior, but not really, which is weird. Uh, never files for, yeah, new ID under this alias. And then after 20 years, he's pulled over while on a trip in North Carolina where he'd moved uh, recently with his new family. He's pulled over for not having a $1.50 light bulb over the license plate of his car. And he can't produce a driver's license because he doesn't have one. He's been getting away with this for so long. <laughs> I can't imagine the stress I would be under. And then he's booked in jail as John Doe. Once in jail, the whole truth comes out, but there is no law against swimming away from your family like a dickhead and letting them assume you're dead. So he actually wasn't charged with anything. It's not illegal to be an asshole. Police did notify his poor daughter, who was four when he disappeared, had been searching for a dad she wasn't sure was even alive for, you know, years. This piece of shit wouldn't talk to reporters after the story came out, not known if he reconnected with his daughter. Uh, when a reporter for CNN tried to find out, left a voicemail, he returned the call, asked what an interview with him would uh, be worth to you. Then told that CNN doesn't pay for interviews, he responded, unless you want to pay for it, don't come up here. You're wasting your time. There are no trespassing signs on my property. And he does look like a guy based on uh, photos who speaks like that. And then he hung up. Fucking cool guy. Uh, his wife apparently was, quote, distraught, uh, devastated when told the truth about him, according to law enforcement. Yeah, I bet. I would the very least that his daughter went to Ozark and just confronted him and embarrassed him in his store. What a fucking weasel. He didn't even have a warrant out for him. He wasn't in any trouble. Just, just worried that he might get in trouble. <laughs> Maybe he didn't want to pay child support or something too. I don't know. Clearly didn't care about his fiance or his kid. Just let both his daughter and fiance assume he was dead because, you know, just life got too crazy. You know, he thought the police might be after him. And fuck it. Let's just uh, start things over in Ozark. Uh, interesting to note, right, that there's no law on the books against faking your death or disappearing. 
Not unless you're doing it for fraud reasons. Like like auxiliary crimes done in the process of faking your own death, uh, disappearing can get you into trouble, like authenticating details that bolster the credibility of a death scene. Uh, To quote Frank Ahern, you blow up your house, you chop your fingers off, you leave your fingers behind. That's a crime. If somewhere down the line you find out they paid your wife $100,000 in insurance, that's a crime. Uh, If you even try to rent a bike or apply for a library card with another identity, and especially if you try to cash in a life insurance policy, now you're committing crimes, right? Now you're committing fraud. But to simply pretend that your old identity is dead, if you're not avoiding a crime in doing so, that's not a crime in and of itself, which surprises me for some reason. Another weird story along these lines. Uh, People, man. Petra Pazitska, Pazitska. Petra Pasitka, a German woman, pulled off a fully legal faked death for over three decades before her true identity was rediscovered in the fall of 2015. Uh, Pasitka, there we go, was a 24-year-old computer science student in 1984 and then just disappeared. She was last seen boarding a bus in uh, Braunschweig. In the Braunschweig, uh, her disappearance, I don't know why I feel the need to do that. Her disappearance triggered a massive manhunt and of course, no one finds her. Investigators uh, sought help from a popular crime show to try and find her in 1985. A year earlier, a 14-year-old girl had been murdered in the vicinity of her home, right near the the time she disappeared. She disappeared. Police wondered if Petra's disappearance was connected to this murder. Thanks to some tips, a carpenter's apprentice, 19-year-old known as Gunter K, is arrested, confesses to murdering the 14-year-old, and then also confesses to murdering Pasitka, which he did not do. Clearly, his confession was uh, coerced. And now Petra was uh, declared dead. Probably should have come out of hiding to say that she wasn't murdered by uh, Gunter. But if he did kill the other girl, ah, then fuck him. Uh, but then 30 years later, at 55 years old, Petra reappeared when she alerted police to a burglary taking place at her Dusseldorf, Dusseldorf home. Uh, when police asked for her identification, she introduces herself as uh, Mrs. Schneider, but then doesn't have any documents to confirm that identity and ends up caving, telling the police she's Petra uh, Pasitka. Investigators then find out she had spent the past 31 years bouncing around between different German cities without any government ID, without any bank accounts, paying for everything in cash. Sources are vague when it comes to how she made money. Authorities just said uh, through illicit work, which could mean so many things. Why did she go into hiding? She refused to give any motive for her disappearance. She only told the police uh, she wanted nothing to do with her family and no contact with the public. Since she committed no life insurance or identity fraud, not charged with any criminal offense for disappearing. Man, why go through all that trouble? Like, what was she hiding from? Also, with both her and the last guy who literally swam away from his life, I just do love that detail. <laughs> I mean, I, he, must, he must have planned it a little bit, you know, because he like had money with him. I mean, sure, but that's a weird, that's weird. I, mean, I guess it's kind of smart, you know, they assume you're, you're going to you drown. Uh, I just understand like how they didn't at least get in trouble for something like tax fraud or something, because like they're making money. There's no way they're paying taxes, right? Uh, After being found, Petra did have to register herself with German authorities as, you know, being alive. Uh, In addition to help locate people like Petra, our old disappearance expert, Frank Ahern. Ahern, I don't know why I just want to call him uh, A-hole. Frank A-hole, but he seems fine. Frank Ahern uh, also has helped people disappear in the past. So he doesn't just uh, explain, you know, like how people disappear. I think he's looked for disappearing people, but he's, but he's also helped people disappear, uh, charging up to $30,000 per case for his services. How he's done it is, is legal. He says that his clients usually want to disappear for one or two reasons, money or violence. Occasionally, he says disappearances can be uh, filed into the category of love, like when the husband or wife wants to run away with, uh, you know, some other woman or man who's not their spouse. But he says that's pretty rare. Uh, he estimates that between 2001, 2012, he helped around 50 people disappear. 
He claims to have never helped people with offshore banking, but instead sets his clients up as virtual entities. So they can have money, make money, but stay off the grid. He'll help them funnel money into, uh, uh, you know, to fund their livelihood from phone bills to rent under a limited liability company, LLC, which depending on the state can be set up with varying degrees of anonymity, along with a variety of uh, other undetectable methods, such as prepaid cell phones and credit cards. Frank can make his clients invisible without them having to ever assume a false identity, right? So he can do it legal. Uh, His process follows three steps. First step is misinformation which means destroying any information available from closing bank and phone accounts to removing your name from online databases. Then he creates disinformation or false leads to throw off pursuers. So if some waitress client of his, for example, is departing for Kansas in February, Frank starts diverting traceable leads to her going to Chicago in January. He'll have her place calls to realtors, utility companies, uh, restaurants that might be hiring. So if anyone starts looking for her, they'll assume she's in Chicago. Once Frank, in this example, has sufficiently engineered enough false leads and set her up in the next place, he calls the woman to say it's go time. And he'll have her flee, leave behind almost everything, sometimes bringing only one bag. The woman might then also hire a PI to do surveillance, make sure uh, anyone she's trying to avoid isn't following her, hasn't caught onto her plans. And of course, the woman will then take an indirect route to Kansas by, for example, buying a bus ticket to Chicago to go with that story, doing it with a credit card, and then paying for her Kansas ticket with cash. Once in Kansas, she'll have to find work off the books, getting paid in cash. This shit is not easy. It takes a lot of money to set all this in motion. Then once you get uh, to where you're going, your ability to make money while remaining invisible is now limited. And it's all, yeah, just so much work. I feel like the only reason to do this is when you feel like your life is truly in jeopardy, in extreme danger if you don't do this. To keep in touch with loved ones left behind, Frank devises codes. And I guess, you know, if you want to avoid going to prison for the rest of your life or something. Uh, Frank devises codes in the form of Craigslist postings and classified ads. Uh, this is pretty ingenious. So like if someone wants to get in touch with a, uh, with a disappeared woman, they'll look up, say, 1974 Cadillac Seville with white wall tires and switch the last two digits of the phone number in the ad to call her prepaid cell phone. Some little, you know, code they work out. Even when all these steps are taken, Frank says that completely erasing a digital footprint is now impossible but you can almost do it. He does something he calls stretching the footprint, which is almost as good. Uh, Basically, he creates stand-ins between him and his clients. So many of them uh, that tracking, uh, you know, all this, like it it would be nearly impossible to track them. For example, if he needs to email someone hiding in say Romania, he gets one person from a circle of third-party people in all different parts of the world who work as assistants for companies like Odesk, a freelancing service, who then have prepaid cell phones to call someone and say, South Korea. The South Korean person gets the email read to them by one of the contacts. They then email it to someone in Norway who then shuts down that email account, opens up a new one, emails it to Romania. It's laborious. It's not perfect, but the average person can't follow this trail. And even law enforcement likely can't. They they would need to spend a lot of time and energy to track all this down. Time that the disappeared person can then use to disappear again if they catch on to anyone pursuing them. Uh, mudding up one's digital pr- footprint is only part of hiding though. You have to also be careful about what clues you can be leaving physically, like footage caught on a security camera. One way Frank hides his client's physical footprints is to get them a burner phone. He finds random people on the street, pays them to go buy the prepaid phones, making sure neither his face nor his client's face ever shows up on security camera footage associated with this act of buying this phone. All this probably sounds like a, a huge pain in the ass because it is. There is a reason many people don't actually go through with running off to live a new life. Even if their living situation, not exactly what they might've hoped for. It is a tremendous pain in the ass, a huge amount of hassle and stress. And many people still get, uh, get rediscovered after all this. One mistake, 
right? Getting pulled over for a tiny light bulb being out or panicking when it comes to finding identification after calling the police can alert authorities to who you really are. It's fascinating stuff. Uh, Now that we've dipped our toes into a few examples, set some of the reasons people disappear and how they sometimes end up reappearing, uh, um, let's dive further into the world of mysterious disappearances. No time suck timeline today. Instead, we're just grouping uh, these uh, vignettes into broad categories. First up is political disappearances which we will get to after today's mid-show sponsor break. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. If you suddenly had an extra hour show up in your day every day, what would you do with it? Work out, sleep, read a book, play Fortnite, call your mom, take judo lessons, finally watch all the episodes of Shameless. A lot of us spend a lot of our time wishing we had more time. But why? Time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? The bad news is that you're not going to get that 25th hour. But what you can probably do is reprioritize where you spend some of your time. Therapy can help you find what matters to you so you can do more of it with your time. This year, my health is more important to me than cranking out another stand-up special as fast as possible. So I canceled a tour, sacrificed that income, and decided to spend a lot of the time I just got back working out more, resting more, relaxing more, and enjoying time with family, friends, and just myself. And I'm so glad I did. I feel better than I have in a long time. And my BetterHelp therapist, Debbie, was very helpful in getting me to make the decision to pull back. Thank you, Debbie. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash TimeSuck today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P com slash time suck. After years of fine print contracts and getting ripped off by overpriced wireless providers, if you've learned anything, it's that there's always a catch. So when you hear that Mint Mobile wireless plans are $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan, you're probably thinking, what's the catch? Well, there isn't one, really. They cut the cost of retail stores and pass those sweet savings directly to you. It's pretty simple. Mint Mobile is here to rescue you with premium wireless plans for just 15 bucks a month and no catch. All plans come with unlimited talk and text plus high-speed data delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. And you can use your own phone with any Mint Mobile plan and bring your phone number along with all your existing contacts over. And in addition to saving money, like over a 50% price drop from what I was paying before, the network quality, in my experience, is better than it was with my old service provider. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, go to mintmobile.com slash timesuck. That's mintmobile.com slash timesuck. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash timesuck. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Thanks to Rocket Money, I canceled a membership to a gym I used to go to where I continued to pay a monthly membership for a couple of years after I stopped going. I didn't even recognize the charge. Rocket Money found it though, and it was canceled. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills so that you can grow your savings. Rocket Money will even try to negotiate lower bills for you by up to 20%. All you have to do is submit a picture of your bill and Rocket Money takes care of the rest. They'll deal with customer service for you. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has saved a total of $500 million in canceled subscriptions, saving members up to $740 a year when using all of the app's features. 
Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash timesuck. That's rocketmoney.com slash timesuck. Rocketmoney.com slash timesuck. I still love peanut butter and jelly sandwiches, but I'd stopped eating them almost entirely a while back because the bread on top of the sugar from the jelly made me so sleepy. All those carbs causing me to want to take a nap after eating them. Enter Hero Bread. Hero Bread takes the fear of carbs out of bread, but still leaves you with that delicious bread taste. Hero Bread has zero to one gram of net carbs, zero grams of sugar, and it's high in fiber. It's also delicious and flavorful. The soft, fluffy experience you love when enjoying a savory breakfast burrito or mouth-watering cheeseburger. There is something for every craving, including sliced bread loaves, buns, and tortillas. And there are monthly small batch drops of indulgent favorites, like the two grams of net carbs Hero Croissant or the one gram of net carbs Hero Cheddar Biscuit. I had a loaf of Hero Classic White Bread delivered last week. Soft, fluffy, and delicious. Five grams of protein per slice, and it's high in fiber. And the best part? Hero Bread doesn't taste healthy. It tastes like bread. It's great. Don't give up on being a breadhead. Hero Bread is offering 10% off your order. Go to hero.co and use code TIMESUCK at checkout. That's TIMESUCK at H-E-R-O dot C-O. Thanks for listening to those deals. Uh, even if you're living somewhere under a new identity and left behind your old life, uh, why not still use our landing pages and sales codes to save some money? Now back to the topic. Mysterious disappearances have been happening for political reasons practically since society was invented. All the way back in the 8th century BCE, the very beginning of Rome would see its own disappearance. Legend says Rome was founded by twin brothers Romulus and Remus, who were evidently also raised by she-wolf, as in an actual wolf. Most historians think the she-wolf was actually a uh, sex worker, since ancient Romans sometimes called them she-wolves. According to the legend, in 753 BCE, the brothers founded Rome, then Romulus ruled it for nearly 40 years. Then one day, Romulus went down to the Temple of Vulcan to talk to some senators and promptly disappeared. There are a couple of different versions of how he disappeared. In one, a cloud engulfed him and he was never seen again. In another, a solar eclipse shrouded the world in darkness and when the sun reemerged, Romulus was gone. Some dude named Julius uh, Procul- Proculus, excuse me, uh, who said he'd encountered Romulus wearing really shiny armor, said that Romulus told him he'd actually been a god all along. And now it's time for him to go back to the heavens. According to Roman lore, uh, the Romans of the day figured that was a plausible you know, explanation and the matter was settled. Dude just went back to living in the clouds as a god after getting the empire rolling, okay? What's not to understand? Uh, more likely, Romulus was assassinated by senators who then concocted the whole disappeared in the cloud story to cover up their murderous deed. Romulus would not be the first uh, state, statesman to disappear in all likelihood, nor, of course, the last. By the time Julius Caesar came to power, 60 BCE, the Romans were well on their way in the quest for expansion and world domination. One of the first territories on Caesar's list was Belgica, where modern Belgium is today. Uh, Caesar introduced himself to the Belgi by conquering them and selling a bunch of them into slavery. So not the best first impression for them. Uh, A few years later, he sent his legion into the region to establish winter quarters and was defeated by a Gallic-Germanic tribe led by a king named Ambiarux. Ambiarux. The king led a series of assaults on the Romans, one of which resulted in 6,000 dead Romans. However, the tribe was fairly small, and within a year, you know, Caesar uh, had put down their uprising for good. Could just send more soldiers. After his last stand, uh, Ambiarix was seen running off into the forest with some guards and then never heard from again. And according to legend, his people resettled among other German tribes. And as far as history remembers, the Romans never did track him down. So he successfully disappeared. 
Hail, however the fuck you say that guy's name. Uh, today, the Belgians consider him a hero. Statue of him sits in the city of Tangeren, believed to be the historical site of his tribe. Now let's move to the 15th century. Emperor Constantine the Eleventh, who ruled over uh, the Byzantine Empire from 1404 to 1453, also dis- disappeared mysteriously, or at least just disappeared. He would be the last uh, Byzantine emperor. In the 1450s, the Ottoman Sultan Mehmed II began directing all his resources to capture Constantinople and was successful. During the event that would become known as the Fall of Constantinople, Ottoman besiegers vastly outnumbered the Byzantines and their allies. Uh, Between 60,000 and 80,000 soldiers fought on land, accompanied by 69 cannons. Mehmed's strategy was straightforward. He was going to use his fleet and siege lines to blockade Constantinople on all sides while relentlessly battering the walls of the city with cannons. By the end of May 1453, after a week's-long siege, the Ottomans invaded the city's walls. And Constantine XI would jump into the fray with his soldiers, apparently preferring to go out a hero, uh, than submit to the Ottomans. But what happened next? It is unclear if Constantine actually died. In some versions of the story, he avoided capture by asking one of his soldiers to kill him. In others, he escaped by boat. This, uh, maybe they escaped, maybe they died thing, would be a recurring theme throughout not just Western history, but global history. In pre-modern China, Jin Wan was the second emperor of the Ming dynasty, just 21 years old when he came to power in 1398. During the first year of his reign, he took out several rival princes to consolidate his power. But then when he tried to take out his uncle, the Prince of Yan, his uncle immediately staged a rebellion. And the war lasted four years. And then when the uh, uh, Prince Yan attacked the capital and burned down uh, Jin Wan's palace. Sadly, when Jin Wan saw his uncle coming, uh, he just hid in the palace and he was still in there when it all burned to the ground. Or was he? Dun, dun, dun. As with these other ancient stories, there were some who thought he'd actually escaped. The body that Prince John presented as proof of his nephew's demise was charred beyond recognition. So really, could have been anyone. Said that the real Prince John lived out his days as a monk in a nearby monastery. Maybe. Now let's fast forward to the 20th century. Talk about those motherfuckers, those uh, disappearing Nazis we mentioned. We already covered uh, how Adolf Eichmann fled Germany for Argentina and was captured by the Mossad, Israel's uh, secret service in the second part of our Holocaust uh, series. He was just one of the many Nazis who had disappeared to South America. After the war, thousands of Nazi officers, high-ranking party members and collaborators, including many notorious war criminals, escaped across the Atlantic, finding refuge in South America, particularly in Argentina, Chile, and Brazil. Argentina, for once, uh, for one, as we also talked about in that second Holocaust suck, already home to hundreds of thousands of German immigrants and had maintained close ties to Germany during the war. After 1945, Argentine president Juan Perón, himself drawn to fascist ideologies, enlisted intelligence officers and diplomats to help establish rat lines or escape routes via Spanish and Italian ports for many in the Third Reich. Just like the U.S. gave certain Nazis whose valuable knowledge could strengthen the U.S. military a pass on their involvement in war crimes with Operation Paperclip, Argentina gave Nazis a pass if uh, Perrin thought they could strengthen his nation. As thousands of Nazis and their collaborators poured into the continent, a sympathetic and sophisticated network developed, easing the transition for those who came after. And one of the very worst to come over after was uh, Joseph Mengele, the angel of death, a doctor who led some of the most horrifying experiments ever conducted at Auschwitz. An SS officer, Mengele was uh, sent at the start of World War II to the Eastern Front to repel the Soviets and received an Iron Cross for his bravery and service. After being wounded, declared unfit for active duty, he was assigned to the Auschwitz death camp. There, he used the prisoners, particularly twins, pregnant women, 
and the disabled. This guy was a, such a fucking especially evil monster as human science experiments. Quick reminder of how monstrous this dude was. One witness to his horror described after the war how Mangala ripped an infant from his mother's womb, hurled it into an oven because it wasn't a twin as he had hoped and he was frustrated. Another witness recounted how Mengele kept hundreds of human eyes from people he'd experimented on pinned to his fucking lab wall. Quote, like a collection of butterflies. Uh, he's definitely worth doing a uh, full episode on someday. One of our evil profiles. So we'll only cover his evil briefly today. After World War II, Mengele spent three plus years in hiding in Germany, bouncing around from safe house to safe house. 1949, with the help of a Catholic clergy member, the angel of death fled via Italy to Argentina, where he owned a mechanical equipment shop. There he remarried under his own name, in uh, Uruguay in 1958. So I guess not in Argentina. He made it to Uruguay in 1958, remarried there under his uh, own name. Uh, the doctor went on to live in various Buenos Aires uh, suburbs in Argentina. Uh, then after hearing a fellow Nazi, Adolf Eichmann's capture, went underground, first in Paraguay, then in Brazil, uh, when he changed his name. West Germany had sent extradition requests to Argentina for him. Uh, they dragged their feet, claiming a review was necessary because the doctor's crimes had been, quote, political. Nazi hunters pursued him for decades, never caught him. Mengele drowned off the Brazilian coast in 1979, felled by a stroke at the age of 67. Because he'd operated under an assumed name in Brazil, his death wasn't verified until his remains were forensically tested in 1985. All the evil shit he did. And sadly, he got away with it. Successfully disappeared. Had to live in hiding for many years, had to bounce around from country to country, but lived the life of a well-to-do doctor in South America for many years until he died. Another high-profile Nazi who successfully disappeared in South America was Walter Walter Ralph. Walter Ralph. Uh, Ralph was instrumental in the construction and implementation of the mobile gas chambers responsible for killing an estimated 100,000 people during World War II. According to the United Kingdom's, right, uh, MMI5, uh, you know what? I never, I, I, I recognize, I read it, and I'm like, yeah, this is a spy agency. But then I'm like, is it, is it M15? Logan, do you happen to know if it's M15 or MI5? I always thought it was MI5. I think it is MI5. Okay. Apologies if I were wrong, but I think it's MI5. Intelligence Agency. Uh, Ralph oversaw the modifications of trucks that diverted their exhaust fumes into airtight chambers in the back of vehicles capable of carrying as many as 60 people. We talked about these in the, uh, the Holocaust uh, suck. Uh, I think the first, the first one in that two-parter. The trucks were driven to burial sites along the way victims could be poisoned or asphyxiated from the carbon monoxide. Actually, I think we talked about in the second episode. Not that that is a super important detail right now. But uh, after persecuting Jews in uh, Tunisia during 1942 and 1943, Ralph oversaw Gestapo operations in Northwest Italy. There, as in uh, Tunisia, Ralph gained a reputation for utter ruthlessness and became infamous for the indiscriminate execution of both Jews and locals. That's how you know that you're uh, uh, an especially horrific piece of shit when you stand out amongst fellow Nazis for cruelty. Uh, luckily, Allied troops arrested Ralph at the end of the war, but then unluckily, he escaped from an American POW camp and hid in some Italian co- convents. After serving as a military advisor to the president of Syria in 1948, he fled back to Italy, then escaped to Ecuador in 1949 before settling in Chile, where he lived under his own name. There, Ralph worked as the manager of a king crab cannery and actually spied on behalf of West Germany between 1958 and 1962, was on the government payroll clandestinely. Uh, his whereabouts to Nazi hunters then became known after he sent a letter requesting that his German naval pension be sent to his new address in Chile. Uh, he is arrested in 1962 in Chile, but freed by the country's Supreme Court the following year. Chilean dictator Augusto Pinochet repeatedly resisted calls from West Germany for Ralph's extradition. He reportedly worked for Chile as an advisor to the Chilean secret police. 
a documentary filmmaker, found, interviewed him in uh, Santiago in 1979, and then Ralph died in Chile in 1984 at the age of 77. Numerous German and Chilean mourners at his funeral gave Nazi salutes and loudly chanted, Heil Hitler. Wow, that went on in fucking public in 1984. What the fuck was going on down in Chile? Uh, another really bad dude who disappeared from Europe following World War II, then reappeared in South America and lived a long and prosperous life. Another dude who got away with uh, doing a lot of bad shit. Some escaped Nazis did eventually face justice, though. They disappeared for a while, but didn't get to keep living the, the free life until the end of their days. Nicknamed the White Death for his proclivity to wear a white uniform and carry a whip. Sounds like a real peach. The Austrian-born Franz Stongel uh, worked on the Actian T4 euthanasia program, under which the Nazis killed those with mental and physical disabilities. We talked about that in the Holocaust two-parter. He, uh, the T4 program was basically the blueprint for the Holocaust. Franz later served as the c- commandant of the Sobibor and Treblinka death camps in German-occupied Poland. More than 100,000 Jewish people believed to have been murdered during his tenure at Sobibor before he moved to Treblinka, where he was directly responsible for the Nazis' second deadliest camp where 900,000, uh, approximately, Jews were killed. Or concentration camp victims were killed. Mostly Jews. Uh, after the end of the war, uh, Stengel was captured by the Americans but escaped to Italy from an Austrian prison camp in 1947. Assisted by a Nazi-sympathizing Austrian bishop, Stengel traveled to Syria on a Red Cross passport before sailing to Brazil in 1951. He was employed by Volkswagen in Sao Paulo under his own name when he was arrested in 1967 after being tracked down by Simon Weisenthal, or Weisenthal Holocaust survivor, well-known Nazi hunter. Extradition to West Germany, uh, extradited to West Germany, Stengel was tried and found guilty of the mass murder of 900,000 people, sentenced to life in prison, and then died of heart failure in 1971 at the age of 63. So, only spent four of his 63 years in prison, but, you know, he was caught. So I guess better than nothing. Similarly, uh, Joseph Schwamberger, an SS commandant in charge of three labor camps in the Jewish ghettos of Nazi-occupied Poland, was captured by Argentine officials in 1987 when he was 75, after an informant responded to the German government's $300,000 reward. He returned to West Germany in 1990 to stand trial. Witnesses of the trial said they had heard, uh, had seen uh, Schwamberger throw prisoners onto fucking bonfires. God damn. Kill Jews kneeling beside mass graves. You know, mourning. And uh, slam children's heads against walls simply because he didn't want to waste a bullet on them. So he's a real piece of shit. 1992, at the age of 80, he was found guilty of seven counts of murder and 32 cases of accessory to murder, sentenced to life imprisonment. Uh, Schwamberger died in prison in 2004 at the age of 92. And again, hate that for almost all of his good years, he got away with it and successfully disappeared. But I guess some justice is uh, better than no justice. It's so weird that he did like that much stuff and then just went on to like, you know, just uh, live in South America and I don't know, just kind of have, I'm sure, somewhat some semblance of a of a normal life. Yeah, just working at uh, fucking for Volkswagen. Just picturing like that guy in the in the break room. Somebody's addicted to him and he's just picturing just fucking slamming their head into the wall. Right? I've I've done it before. Uh, I don't know what accent that was. Tales of disappearing Nazis have influenced the historical legacy of Adolf Hitler. Some, mainly not the sharpest knives in the drawer, let's be honest, uh, still believe that the Nazi leader did not, in fact, commit suicide in a Berlin bunker in April of 1945. Instead, as leading theory goes, he escaped to South America as well, lived out the rest of his life unpunished for his unfathomable war crimes. Uh, we can actually trace his disappearance and reappearance rumor back to a single source, Joseph Stalin. The Soviets learned of Hitler's death the day after his suicide. The chief of staff of the German army, Hans Krebs, uh, went with a peace proposal to the Soviets. 
informed them of the Fuhrer's suicide. The meeting failed when the Soviets demanded unconditional surrender. Krebs, who had always been loyal to his boss, committed suicide that same afternoon. The highest Soviet authority in Berlin, uh, General uh, 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 Georgi Zhukov, uh, then ordered the news of Hitler's death to be put on the front page of the Red Star, the newspaper of his troops. He wanted his soldiers to know as soon as possible about his achievements to reward them with the news. Karl Donitz also communicated uh, it to the German people by radio. But three weeks later, Stalin told an American envoy that Hitler had actually escaped. Said, uh, you know, Stalin said he was in Spain or Argentina. Meanwhile, Zukov in Germany now begins to repeat Stalin's story. It's believed that Stalin's motivation was to uh, sow uncertainty so that the other victorious nations wouldn't know what next steps to take while the Soviets did, while they moved in and took over a portion of Germany and other formerly Nazi-occupied territories. Fucking Russians! They've been successfully tricking us uh, Americans for so long. This rumor was also advantageous to Stalin because if Hitler was still alive, there was always the possibility of return. Therefore, according to Stalin's propaganda machine, there was no room for contemplation or soft measures. The shadow of the escaped Hitler allowed Stalin to convince others to apply harsh sanctions, be inflexible with Germany and the remnants of Nazism. Uh, The British became concerned enough about this rumor that they sent a Secret Service agent and historian, Hugh Trevor Roper, to reconstruct the facts and obtain as much testimony and evidence as possible to try to ascertain if Hitler was still alive or not. Trevor Roper produced a report that definitively determined Hitler had definitely uh, died by suicide. The report was published as a book shortly afterward, leaving most people satisfied, you know, that Hitler was definitely dead, killed himself in his bunker. Though scholars now agree that Hitler and his wife, Eva Braun, carried out a suicide pact in that bunker, rumors of Hitler's survival, you know, wouldn't go away after the war, largely because officials never publicly identified the couple's remains. In early 2014, the FBI declassified more than 700 pages of tips and notes on investigations into whether Hitler, like other leading Nazis, escaped to South America. Uh, Those reports started circulating in the months after Joseph Stalin's big fib. That silly, strong pony boy. Uh, The report's list of possibilities as varied as they were contradictory. Rumors had reached the agency that he had been killed at the bunker, uh, had escaped from Berlin by air or Germany by escaped in a submarine. Others claimed he was living on an island far from the Baltic and a fortress in the Rhineland, in a Spanish monastery, or in a South American camp. They even claimed to have seen him uh, living among criminals in Albania. A Swiss journalist declared that Hitler and Eva Braun resided in Bavaria, and a Soviet news agency sent a cable stating that Hitler was found in Dublin, uh, and he was uh, uh, wearing women's clothing there for some reason. Uh, But over the years, the version that gained more strength and almost monopolized conspiracy theories was that Hitler managed to escape from the bunker and the Red Army siege and together with Eva Braun, reach Argentina to live amongst a bunch of other Nazis. Some say that a helicopter took him to Austria, then a plane took him to Barcelona, where he's able to board a submarine across the Atlantic uh, that deposited him in Patagonia. Others argue that he took a land crossing to Spain, then got on a submarine, ignoring that it would be impossible to cross half of Europe in 1945. In reality, two German submarines indeed did arrive in Argentina after the war, but not to deliver Hitler. They just went to avoid surrendering to uh, British forces. In the 1960s, the rumor that Hitler was still alive, uh, uh, this rumor, uh, wreaked havoc on one really unlucky Argentinian man's life, which is why I wanted to include it in this uh, series of vignettes. In 1969, Albert Panka turned 80 years old. He was a German miner who had been retired for several years, just an average older man uh, who'd been arrested about 300 times. In the previous 25 years, for bullshit reasons, he was arrested over and over and over again because he looked a lot like Hitler. (laughs) When I first came across this info, I immediately thought, why didn't he just shave off his little Hitler stash right after the first few arrests? But he didn't actually have a little Hitler stash. 
I wish he did for entertainment value though, right? I wish he was just bringing it on himself. Why, why do I keep getting arrested? How, how do I look like the Fuhrer? How, what, this, this tiny mustache? Uh, anyone can have a tiny mustache. Is, is it a swastika armband? Uh, anyone can just happen to uh, like the shape and the colors. Is it the constant talking about uh, wishing to kill all the Jews? Anyone can think these things. No, he wasn't doing anything that stupid. He just like bone structure, facial features, uh, body type, age, etc. Just like really, uh, unfortunately, looked a lot like Hitler. His resem- resemblance to Hitler was so striking that he said someone denounced him basically every time he, he appeared in public. And he would be arrested and interrogated by the authorities over and over again. When he turned 80, he publicly pleaded to be left alone, to be allowed to live his old age in peace. He told the press, uh, I'm fed up with being taken for that other fellow uh, that I'm not a retired Fuhrer. Fucking sucks for him, but uh, that's so funny to me. Like, what a fucking curse. What a weird curse. Like, just to really look like some random piece of shit, like one of the worst pieces of shits. And to live where that person supposedly escaped, you know, off to like, like imagine like living in New Mexico down in the Caribbean, someplace that Epstein supposedly like when he, uh, his death was faked according to some conspiracies might've, uh, you know, bounced out to, and, and also looking exactly like Jeffrey Epstein, just catching shocked stares, stink eyes every time you're out in public, right? Shocked glances. I mean, would you eventually just snap and start making crazy announcements just when you walk into restaurants, bars, et cetera? Hey! I'm not him, everybody. Not a kitty diddler. Not a teen masseuse fucker, okay? Let's just get that out of the way. Uh, speaking of massages, uh, imagine walking into a Cleveland massage parlor right now uh, looking exactly like uh, Deshaun Watson. Just looking exactly like disgraced Browns quarterback Deshaun Watson. You have to walk in. Hey, 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 easy, easy. I'm not Deshaun Watson. Not going to keep allegedly brushing my dick up against you during the massage. Trying to talk you into sucking it. Not that guy. One more, just because this is fun for me. Imagine showing up at a Ukrainian bakery looking exactly like Putin. I know Tim. I'm not, the, I'm not strong pony boy. I love Ukraine. Yay. Blue, yellow flag, grain and stuff. I like it. I more than made my point. I keep kicking dead pony. I stop now. Uh, now let's look at some much more modern disappearing political figures. There are still figureheads disappear all the time, fleeing their criminal, uh, you know, f- fleeing their crimes against humanity. Excuse me. Uh, one such person is Fulgence Kaishuma. Kaishuma was born in 1960, became a Rwandan Hutu militiaman during the 1994 Rwandan genocide. He was the inspector of the judicial police uh, at the time of the genocide. During the 1994 Rwandan genocide, also known as the genocide against the Tutsi, members of the Hutu ethnic majority in the East Central African nation of Rwanda murdered as many as 800,000 people, mostly of uh, the Tutsi minority. And uh, Kaishima played a big role in this. He would be charged by the prosecutor of the International Criminal Tribunal for Rwanda with genocide, conspiracy to commit genocide, and extermination, all crimes against humanity. This was uh, particularly due to his role in the April 16th, 1994 massacre at Nyanji Church. In the days leading up to the massacre, 2,000 Tutsi civilians, women, men, children, elderly, sought refuge inside this church. Initially, militia surrounded the church, launched an attack, uh, launched an attack, including throwing hand grenades into the packed building. While many were wounded and killed, the refugees remaining resisted and forced the attackers to retreat. Fucking tough bastards! But then, determined to murder these innocent civilians, local leaders, including Kaishumi, now brought in a fucking bulldozer to the church, and uh, the bulldozer was used just to demolish the church with the refugees still inside. And more than fifteen hundred innocent people are crushed to death. The few survivors who escaped hunted down and killed. 
And before Kaishuma could be brought to justice, that fucker disappeared. Reportedly, Kaishuma is now living in South Africa. And UN prosecutors uh, have blasted that country's uh, government, their leaders, for refusing to apprehend him. So he got away with it. Reminds me of a uh, former suck subject, general suck subject, general butt naked. Uh, the early 2000s would see the vanishing of many high up members of extremist networks in the Middle East. People like Saif Aladel, former Egyptian colonel and explosive expert, uh, declared wanted in 2003 for his part in the 1998 U.S. embassy bombings in Kenya. Adele was a member of the advisory council of Al-Qaeda and a member of its military committee, providing military training to members of Al-Qaeda and Egyptian Islamic Jihad in uh, Afghanistan, Pakistan, and Sudan. Since Al-Qaeda's military chief, uh, Mohammed Eight, was uh, killed in 2001, uh, or Ati possibly, I couldn't find a pronunciation guide for him, journalists reported that Adele was likely his successor in that role. But that year, he would flee from Afghanistan to Iran, perhaps getting released from detainment there in 2010, then returning to Iran maybe in 2011. He may still be residing in Iran. We're not sure. The Rewards for Justice program, U.S. Department of State, is uh, offering a reward of up to $10 million for info leading directly to the apprehension or conviction of Saif al-Adel. A lot of money. Uh, Not all political disappearances happen as a result of uh, war criminals fleeing their crimes. Sometimes they involve journalists who disappeared after reporting on subjects that went against a, uh, you know, government's ideology, like Russian journalist Akadi Babchenko. In 2018, Bobchenko was found lying face down on the floor of his apartment in Kiev, Ukraine, blood seeping through his T-shirt. He was quickly driven away by an ambulance, pronounced dead, delivered to a morgue. But in reality, uh, the three bullet holes were fake and the blood was from a pig. The day after his, quote, death, he turned up at a news conference in Kiev presented by Ukrainian authorities where a room of journalists awaited details of the murder. He apologized to his wife and others for what he'd put them through. Oh, fuck. Yeah, I bet he had to apologize to his wife. Uh, the ruse orchestrated by Ukrainian security service was designed to expose an alleged murder plot in which Kremlin officials ordered a Ukrainian middleman $40,000 for Bobchenko's real assassination. Bobchenko had been informed about the plot to kill him and decided to get one step ahead of him. After the news broke, Bobchenko tweeted to say he would die at 96 after dancing on Putin's grave. Obviously, Russia's strongest pony boy didn't care for that. Uh, Russian's foreign ministry condemned the staged assassination, calling it obviously just another anti-Russian provocation. Spokeswoman Maria uh, Zaharova described the operation as a masquerade done for propagandistic effect. She added that Russia was happy that Babchenko was alive, saying, I wish it were always like that. Sure, sure you do. Um, Let's turn now to our second major category of disappearances. Uh, Crime, crime not committed by Nazis. Um, I find this is probably my favorite uh, little section here. Uh, for many of the people who disappeared, they haven't been high-ranking Nazis or state leaders on the run from enemies. Many of them simply trying to commit non-genocidal crimes of their own. Uh, many of these crimes financial in nature, like the crimes of Samuel Israel III. What a saga this guy's situation was. Uh, Israel looked to be a true financial tycoon, a native of New Orleans, grandson of a well, of well-known commodities trader on Wall Street. He started Bayou Hedge Fund Group in 1996 quickly became a rising star, massing money from some of the most respected investors on Wall Street based on the firm's trading track record. But there was one problem. The firm didn't have any actual profits. In truth, Bayou Hedge Fund consistently lost money. The firm's accounting firm, which confirmed Israel's numbers and letters to investors, was also fictitious. Israel and his partners created the accounting shop out of thin air, including the stationery and logo. As it turned out, things with Bayou were in such bad shape that at the end of 1989, Israel looked for help from his friend and partner, Dan Marino, 
He figured if that rocket-armed motherfucker could throw for over 5,000 yards in 1984 for the Miami Dolphins, if he could throw for over 60,000 yards in the NFL before the age of 40, surely he could turn a sinking hedge fund around, right? No, not that Dan Marino. Uh, Israel did turn to an accountant who happens to be named Dan Marino, though. And together they devised a plan to hide the financial problems. They created their own independent auditing company, one ran by Hall of Fame quarterback, expert NFL analyst, Dan fucking Marino. Fuck yeah, bro. Nice. Or one ran by accountant Dan Marino, who probably sucked at football. Uh, by his updated financial statements, attracted investors whose money would be used to pay earlier clients. So, you know, a Ponzi scheme now. Uh, things seem successful, uh, but they are very stressful. Not actually profitable because the firm is, you know, they're not netting real money. In, 19, in 2004, then a new person arrives on the scene, adds to all this craziness. Uh, they seemingly have all the answers to Israel's problems. Israel's new friend tells him that there's a secret gov- there are secret government projects financed by select banks uh, available on an invite-only basis. If you were able to buy into these programs, if you got invited, you were guaranteed an incredible rate of return. This new contact actually told Sam that he was an ex-CIA officer involved in black ops, lots of super secret, uh, super secret spooky shit. Uh, Sam buys his hook, line, and sinker to the tune of millions and millions and millions of dollars. The scammer has now just been scammed. Part of the con involved the contents of a mysterious Federal Reserve box offered to Israel as collateral. Supposedly, it was from World War II and contained more than $100 million in Federal Reserve bonds. But there's a problem with this. The Federal Reserve issues notes, not bonds. Uh, The box was a total fake. Israel should have uh, maybe done a quick web search before wiring more than 150 fucking million dollars to this con man, all of Bayou's remaining money. This sets off an FBI investigation, uh, or essentially all all the rest of the money. This sets off an FBI investigation who originally believed that Israel was the victim, and he was, kind of, not really, also a victimizer primarily, uh, the more questions the feds ask, the more they realize something's off uh, at Bayou. On July 27, 2005, with pressure mounting, Israel sends a surprise letter to investors announcing he's shutting Bayou down and will send refund checks to investors. But, of course, you know, Bayou has no money to send. Uh, and federal investigators are now closing in on their case against Israel and some of his scam cohorts like College Hall of Fame member, NASCAR investor, one of the 10 greatest quarterbacks in NFL history as determined by a panel of coaches and media members and possibly one of the 10 greatest Americans ever, Dan motherfucking Marino. Woo! Dan, say hut! 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 Or Dan, really shitty accountant, Marino. It's just fun to yell stuff like that sometimes. Uh, in total, Sam Israel and Bayou built investors out of more than $300 million in less than a decade. Israel decides to cooperate with the authorities now in hopes of a lenient sentence. Uh, but then, along with partner Dan, not the cool one, Marino, he is sentenced to 20 years in prison, ordered to pay the $300 million in restitution. $300 million he doesn't have or know how to make. Suddenly, the only good option in his life he can think of is to disappear. June 9, 2008, the day that Israel is supposed to report to prison, uh, begins serving his 20-year sentence. He never shows up. Authorities then find his GMC envoy abandoned on the bridge or on a bridge over the Hudson River, scrawled out of pollen on the abandoned SUV's hood are the words, suicide is painless. The title of the theme song for both the movie and TV series, MASH. Uh, real quick, real quick tangent. Did anyone else know uh, that that was a fucking name of the theme song for one of the most critically acclaimed TV shows of all time? I watched this show as a kid, loved it. Literally never picked up on how uh, dark the lyrics were to this song. Listen, it's a great song, but listen to a bit of this. Through early morning fog I see 
visions of the things to be, the pains that are withheld for me, I realize and I can see that suicide is painless. <laughs> it brings on many changes. Never noticed that. Suicide is painless. Oh man, crazy. Anyway, at first, it seems to investigators like Israel jumped into the water below, ending his life. But when divers failed to find a body in the river, they doubt Israel died by suicide. After a bit of digging, Israel's girlfriend, Deborah Ryan, is arrested uh, later the same month for aiding and abetting his escape before she's released on bail. Under intense questioning, Ryan admits to helping him escape. Uh, that she and Israel parked an RV loaded with Israel's belongings near Bear Mountain Bridge the day before his disappearance. Sam Israel was eventually tracked down uh, to a campground in Granville, Massachusetts and surrendered to authorities July 2nd, 2008. He did not disappear for very long at all. Uh, he just made it out. Um, I'm confirming that. Yeah. Yeah. 2008, 2008. Just made it a, a couple of weeks. Uh, as a consequence, he's further sentenced on July 15, 2009 to an additional two years in prison. And his girlfriend is sentenced to three years probation. Uh, today, Israel is serving his sentence at Federal Correctional Institution, Butner Low in Butner, North Carolina, his earliest possible release date, September 12th, 2027. Pulled off a massive Ponzi scheme for a while, could not pull off faking his own death. Uh, for the average citizen who tries to fake their death and disappear, the clear criminal aim is usually insurance fraud. In July of 1997, the New York Times read an article, ran an article titled Fake Deaths Abroad Are a Growing Problem for Insurers. The article described a man named Javier Mozo, who was driving his car on a country road in South America with his brother Ernesto. They apparently got run off the road by a bus, flipped, rolled down the nearby ravine. Javier managed to crawl out of the wreckage alive. Ernesto, not so lucky, died in Javier's arms. Or at least that is what Ernesto's wife, Maria Magdalena Santos, and Javier Mozo told the Northwestern National Life Insurance Company, which had insured Ernesto Mozo's life for half a million dollars. As confirmation of the death, Maria Santos sent the small Minnesota insurer a death certificate issued by the city morgue in the Colombian town of Santa Marta. When an investigator came calling, Javier Mozo provided a long and tragic account of his brother's death, showed him a stone vault in the San Miguel Cemetery. Sorry, sorry San Miguel. Ho, 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 ho. Yeah. This almost gets me every time still. Long habit there. Uh, San Miguel uh, yeah, Cemetery with Ernesto Mozo's name inscribed on an ornate bronze plaque. Ernesto seemed for all the world dead and gone. But of course he wasn't. Soon turned out that the death certificate had been forged, the story made up, and the vault where Ernesto's ashes supposedly rested was just uh, rented. Apparently doing shit like this uh, was growing trend. According to the Times article, in the 1990s, more and more residents of the U.S. had ties to foreign countries where it was easier to fake deaths. And as American insurance companies were extending their global reach, they'd started aggressively selling policies in countries with less than rigorous standards for record-keeping and documentation. Uh, most of these fraud cases, uh, a central thread is a trip abroad, preferably to some place trying to cope with an upheaval like an earthquake, flood, perhaps a civil war, meaning that records of major life events like deaths are few and far between. Uh, Ronald W. Poindexter, the director of Florida's Division of Insurance Fraud, has pointed out that in Haiti, medical examiners are not even required to view a body before issuing a death certificate, uh, provided that three people swear that a death has occurred. I promise he's dead. He promises he's dead. And she promises he's dead. So hand over the certificate. Uh, so it's hard to say whether or not these people are still living. In the case of Ernesto Morzo, uh, who had been visiting Colombia from his new home in Miami, where he and his wife worked for an import-export company, uh, he did soon turn up alive. 
As a result of the work of a private investigator, Ernesto Mozo was jailed briefly in Colombia for forging the signature of the Santa Marta morgue director. Uh, But that was it as far as punishment went. And as far as American journalists know, uh, no one ever went after Javier Mozo. These guys never collected the money, but they also really didn't get in trouble for trying to collect the money. Seems like a good way to encourage more people to try this kind of shit. Another similar case is that of Jose Lantigua, who tried to fake his death in South America to collect $6.6 million in life insurance because he owed millions in debt. Throughout the fraud, Lantigua spun an incredible web of lies about how his military team had taken out a drug cartel leader. Wasn't true. Uh, told his wife he had been diagnosed with a fatal brain disorder, another lie, and advised a business investor that he needed half a million dollars immediately for life-saving medical care. He flew to Venezuela to purchase a death record from a corrupt doctor who never examined him, but provided proof that Lantigua's corpse had been cremated in exchange for a bribe. Uh, with help from his wife, Lantigua eventually made it back to the U.S. They settled in North Carolina. They got the money briefly, but then had it taken away when they got caught. Lantigua was caught when he tried to apply for a passport and use the identity of a man who did not resemble him at all and was already in a federal database. That raised red flags for the State Department, who alerted investigators, who tracked the couple down, captured them. Lantigua was sentenced to 14 years in prison. So he did get in quite a bit of trouble. Now for my favorite of these stories. Another case of attempted insurance scam, that of British teacher and prison officer John Darwin. Darwin born August 14th, 1950 in Hartlepool, England. He studied biology and chemistry at university, got married in 1973 to Anne Stevenson. Uh, Darwin then went on to teach science and mathematics for 18 years, then became a prison officer. That is a weird job transition. You know, just, God, I loathe these children. They don't want to learn. They're disruptive and disrespectful. I hope they end up in prison. If only they were there now, I could at least sleep better at night knowing that they were being punished. Wait a minute. What if I got a job at prison now and worked around people who maybe used to be the kids I taught who are in prison being punished? That sounds simply delightful. Uh, Darwin and his wife, a doctor's receptionist, also ran a business renting bed sits in County Durham with 12 houses. Uh, bed sit, I had not heard this before actually, a form of accommodation common in some parts of the UK, uh, consisting of a single room per occupant with all occupants typically sharing a bathroom. Uh, bed sits are included in a legal category of dwellings referred to as houses in multiple occupation. So kind of a kind of like a hostel. Uh, Darwin and his wife ran into debt after purchasing two houses in Seaton Carew, a quaint little seaside resort town in December 2000. And the debt led Darwin to talk about faking his own death, to claim the insurance by early 2002. And he, attempt, he would attempt that in March. Darwin was seen paddling out to sea in his canoe March 21st, 2002 at Seaton Carew. Uh, later that same day, he's reported as missing after failing to report to work. Uh, a large-scale sea search takes place during which uh, 62 square miles of coastline are searched by hundreds of people. No sign of Darwin, though a double-ended paddle is retrieved from the sea near uh, Seton Crew the following day. The next day, March 22nd, the wreckage of his canoe is found. Uh, unusual, though, the North Sea is uh, uh, very calm was, and rescuers were puzzled that Darwin could have gotten into trouble in those conditions. Of course, he actually didn't get into trouble. During the years that Darwin was presumed dead, he lived for some time in a bedsit next door to his family home, just hid there. <laughs> then secretly moved back in with his wife, Anne, in February of 2003. Meanwhile, a death certificate was issued stating that Darwin had died March 21st, 2002, the day he went missing. This allowed his wife to claim his life insurance, 250,000 pounds, paid out from Unat Direct Insurance Management Limited. It appeared as if the scam worked, and, it, and I guess it did for a while, but Darwin wasn't as good at playing dead as he thought. Sometime that year, a tenant of the block of bedsit flats that Darwin's owned, uh, that the Darwin's owned, Lee Wadrop, recognized Darwin and asked him, aren't you supposed to be dead? 
<laughs> to which Darwin replied, don't tell anyone about this. Wardrop will later say that he didn't go to the police because he did not want to get involved. In 2004, the Darwins decide to move abroad, considering Cyprus. So he's still getting away with it. John Darwin applies for and obtains a passport using the fake name John Jones, but using his true home address. And this fucking works for a while. November of 2004, the couple visits Cyprus to investigate buying property there. And for the next several years, Darwin continues to travel, uh, meet people, uh, tell some people his name is John Williams. When at home, he spends most of his time on the internet, uh, ends up meeting a woman from Kansas in the US who he flies out and has a fucking affair with. All right, dude's having international affairs under this alias. Goes back to the UK, then to Gibraltar, then to El Puerto de Santa Maria to view a 45,000 pound, uh, 42 foot catamaran that he was considering buying. March 9th, 2006, Darwin signs a planning objection to a neighbor's building work using a false name. Getting a little cocky now, right? He's been living like this for too long. Going to go to the authorities while living under a fake name to narc on someone else. Uh, you know, good way to get uh, caught faking your, your death for insurance money. But he doesn't get caught for that at this time. Meanwhile, Darwin and his wife now begin considering Panama as a possible place to live. A couple flies to Panama, July 14th, 2006, where they're photographed by a Panamanian property agent. And the resulting photograph is posted on the internet. March 2007, the couple returns to Panama, forms a company called Jaguar Properties in order to buy a two-bedroom apartment in El Dorado for 50,000 pounds. Following month, Anne returns to the UK to sell her home while Darwin remains in Panama. In May of 2007, the couple purchases a 200,000-pound tropical estate in the village of Escobar, Panama, near the Panama Canal, with the intention of building a hotel that they can uh, run daily uh, canoe trips out of. They're fucking killing it. Uh, John and Anne visit Panama again in July 2007. They stay for six weeks. Then also in uh, the summer of 2007, visa laws change in Panama and UK citizens' uh, identities now have to be verified by UK police in order for them to continue getting Panamanian visas. Uh, Knowing that uh, this John Jones alias isn't going to pass this level of security, Darwin decides now to return to the UK under his real name and claim that he's had amnesia this whole time. So on December 1st, 2007, Darwin walks into the West End Central Police Station in London, claims, uh, I don't know what the fuck was going on the past five years. His wife, Anne, shows up, you know, she gets called, comes down, expresses surprise, joy, elation. I can't believe you found my missing husband. The fucking balls on these two. Just pick another fucking country to go to. Live in that instead of doing this risky shit to try and live in Panama. Uh, pretty quickly becomes clear what's happening. The Daily Mirror, one of the US, UK's biggest publications, uh, begins to circulate a picture they'd obtained of Anne and Darwin in Panama, proving that Darwin had not been dead or missing. Uh, the photo was very easy to find, right? It was featured on a fucking website, moved to Panama.com. The picture they knew got put on the internet earlier. So they got way too cocky. They forgot to uh, lay low. Number one rule when faking your own death for insurance fraud. Fucking lay low. Do not attract unnecessary attention to yourself. The police now just arrest Darwin at his son Anthony's house. Uh, July 23rd, 2008, John and Anne Darwin both convicted of fraud. John Darwin faced an additional charge relating to his fake passport. Ends up sentenced to six years and three months in prison. Anne Darwin... Uh, who was described by the police as a compulsive liar, (laughs) was sentenced to six years and six months. By July of 2015, the pair no longer had any assets, having repaid a total of 541,000 pounds, just a little over, all the money they'd gotten from the insurance scam and used to buy property in Panama. So they had a good run for a little while, but now they're middle-aged and fucking broke. And, you know, like known convicted con artists. While John Darwin certainly didn't have amnesia, let's now look at people who may have truly had it and disappeared. This is a terrifying section. Excuse me. One of the uh, central questions we brought up earlier was the question of amnesia and its role in mysterious disappearances, just disappearances in general. In stories of the disappearances variety, amnesia sticks out as the uh, 
the, the worst possibility to me. Another, another mystery. Uh, we can wrap our heads around how someone might commit a crime and need to go on the lam or even become so dissatisfied with their life that they decide to start over. But the idea that our memories, right? Some would argue the very core of what makes us us could disappear, leaving us to, uh, leading us to a whole new identity, harder to fathom. It seems like something, at least to me, that only happens in movies, but unfortunately not. Uh, yeah, it, it, that something could happen to our brains to make us not us is such a terrifying possibility. What makes amnesia even more complicated in these stories is that it's sometimes hard to tell whether or not the person who disappeared actually had amnesia or if that's you know what they decided to blame their disappearance on when their old life caught up with their new life. Seeing as amnesia can be temporary, such as in uh, after a head injury and subsequent brain healing, it can be hard to tell whether or not someone ever had amnesia at all. It, it, it can be tested for medically, but not with 100% certainty. And the right person can fake it. In testing for amnesia, healthcare providers test the patient's memory by talking with them, observing how well they encode the information that the healthcare provider gives them, and whether or not they can recall that information. They also use information about a patient's memory from the people who know the patient in daily life, their friends, family, etc. To determine the cause of amnesia, a doctor may order blood tests to check vitamin B1 levels, B12 levels, and thyroid hormones. They may order imaging tests such as an MRI or CT scan uh, to look for signs of brain damage such as uh, brain tumors or stroke. An EEG may be ordered to check for seizure activity and a spinal tap may be ordered to check for brain inflections or infections, excuse me, as the cause of memory loss. Uh, of course, all of this was nearly impossible before modest, modern medicine to check for. But also since stress can bring amnesia on, uh, not necessarily physical trauma, not showing any physical origin for the amnesia does not prove that you don't really have it. So again, the right con artist could fake amnesia and use their fake amnesia as a seemingly valid reason for a mysterious disappearance. Uh, that all being said, let's check out our first probably real amnesia story. I, I think uh, I think definitely real. I, I don't understand why this person would fake it. Uh, just a few hours before he disappeared, August 30th, 1902, Dr. William Horatio Bates, a wealthy and influential ophthalmologist, an eye doctor in New York City, wrote a hurried letter. It was delivered to his wife, Ada Seaman Bates, who was out of town visiting her mother. The letter said, my dear wife, I am called out of town to some, uh, to some major operations. I go with Dr. Forsh, an old student, to do a mastoid, some cataracts, and other operations. He promises me a bonanza. Too bad to miss the horse show, but I am glad to get so much money for us all. I am in such a flurry. Do not worry. I will write details later. Yours lovingly, Willie. Well, this letter was weird for a variety of reasons. Bates was already a wealthy man. So why the excitement about all the money? Why all the hustle to leave? At the time, Bates was at the height of his career. In his early 40s, he was handsome, well-off, respected, often consulted by other physicians in unusual cases. He had degrees from Cornell and the College of Physicians and Surgeons, had been an attending physician at the Bellevue Hospital and the New York Eye Infirmary. He taught ophthalmology for five years at the New York Postgraduate Medical School and Hospital. So it was incredibly confusing when he disappeared after sending this weird letter, and he didn't even write to say where he was or when he'd be back. When her husband failed to resurface after several days, Mrs. Bates began a frantic search, inquiring with family friends across the U.S. and Europe. Mr. Bates was a prominent Mason, so she enlisted the support of the local Masonic Society, i.e. devil worshippers, come on, uh, which, you know, uh, used their demon contacts to, uh, you know, circulate his picture amongst the underworld or just circulate his picture around the world in a regular way. Uh, eventually, a letter arrived from Britain reporting that a man fitting the doctor's description was found working as a medical assistant at the Charing Cross Hospital in London after having first been admitted there as a patient. Friends who saw him reported that Bates was haggard, thin, and his eyes were deeply sunken. Bates later said he uh, had even starved at various points in the previous six weeks. 
even though his bank account back in the U.S. would have allowed him to live uh, in luxury anywhere for years. Mrs. Bates boarded the next ship for England, but there wasn't much of a happy reunion when she, when she made it there. Her husband showed no recollection of his previous life, uh, did not recognize his own wife. I don't know why you bother, madam, he reportedly told her. We are strangers. The doctor was reluctantly persuaded to join Mrs. Bates at the Savoy Hotel for a period of rest and recovery. There, he dimly recalled being called away from New York to board a ship and perform an operation on someone with a brain abscess. Confused but relieved, Mrs. Bates planned to stay in London for as long as necessary for her husband to recover from this ordeal and for some further memories of his previous life to surface again, but that would not happen. Just two days after he moved into the Savoy, Dr. Bates walked out of the hotel and disappeared again. After he walked out of the Savoy that autumn day, his wife now spent years tirelessly searching for him up and down Europe and the East Coast of America. She died reportedly embracing a portrait of her husband in 1907. How fucking sad. A few years after she died, Dr. Bates did reappear in North Dakota now. 1910, Dr. J.E. Kelly, a good friend of Dr. Bates from his New York days, happened to be passing through Grand Forks, then a town of 12,000 people. Kelly recognizes his old friend, who had set up a small ophthalmology practice for himself in the town at some point after disappearing eight years earlier. Eventually, Dr. Kelly persuades Bates to return with him to New York, despite Bates' complete lack of memories about his previous life there. Weird to me that he didn't remember living in New York, but did remember how to practice ophthalmology. The two ophthalmologists now go into practice together. A newspaper article later reports, in the window of the house at 117 West 83rd Street, hanging two, uh, hang two neat white-lettered signs. The one reading Dr. J.E. Kelly, the other Dr. W.H. Bates. Here, living quietly with his old friend and gradually building up a practice as he did years ago, Dr. Bates, now 51 years old, is starting his career anew. Bates never recovered his memories of his previous life in New York City, or so he said. Uh, wrote one associate, it was as if he had a chunk of his mind removed, like a slice of watermelon chopped away and eaten by an invisible monster. Jesus Christ, who wrote that? Fucking H.P. Lovecraft? It's terrifying. Uh, Bates went on to serve as an attending physician at the Harlem Hospital and eventually remarried. But there was one thing about his life that uh, didn't continue as normal. In his chosen field of ophthalmology, where he'd been viewed for years as a luminary, Bates now started peddling some weird theories. In 1917, Bates debuted a new and very unusual theory of eye care. The Bates system of eye exercises was offered for the first time in the magazine Physical Culture. Three years later, Bates self-published a book of odd theories entitled Cure of Imperfect Eyesight by Treatment Without Glasses. Bates' methods to cure imperfect eyesight relied on a variety of concepts that contradicted several decades of ophthalmology practice. He taught that vision problems were almost exclusively caused by eye strain and nervous tension rather than problems with the shape of the eyeball or formation of the lens. Vision issues could theoretically be reduced in their severity or even cured by performing a series of eye exercises and learning how to completely relax the mind. I wish. Would love to learn some kind of yoga move or meditative breathing technique that could let me uh, ditch my glasses and not squint at restaurant menus when I don't have them anymore. Uh, Bates followers, and there would be many, uh, were soon busy swinging uh, their eyes from object to object, uh, palming their eyeballs, attempting to visualize pure black as a method of uh, mental relaxation and most controversially, exposing their eyes to direct sunlight, i.e. staring into the sun, all in the name of improving their vision. Holy shit. Uh, Not sure what's crazier, uh, him telling people to stare directly into the sun or people taking him him up on advice to stare directly into the sun. 
1929, Bates becomes a target of the Federal Trade Commission, who issued a complaint against him for making false and misleading claims. Nevertheless, his methods continued to grow in popularity with people seduced by the promise of improving their eyesight without resorting to corrective measures. So weird coda to a weird story. Did Bates truly have amnesia? To this day, no one has arrived at a definitive theory of exact a definitive theory of what exactly happened to Bates during his disappearances. Possible that he was in a disassociative fugue state, or that he just made the whole thing up. Maybe he was tired of his New York life, tired of his marriage, uh, secretly in debt, decided just to walk away, claiming memory loss as a reason when he was eventually caught. Uh, he would die in 1931 before getting into any serious trouble for his horrible eye treatment programs. To me, it sounds like his life is going pretty well. And then something in his fucking brain broke. I mean, I, I, I highly doubt he faked it just based on what I've you know read and what you've heard. Uh, maybe, but it doesn't make any sense to me. How scary. The one day you can be a successful eye doctor. A few weeks later, you're a starving patient in a hospital in another country with no idea of who you really are. Another case of possible amnesia uh, would come from an unlikely source. Arguably the most famous writer of mysteries of all time, Agatha Christie has captivated readers for a century uh, with her novels about detectives hunting for clues to solve mind-bending mysteries. And shortly after finding literary success for the first time, Christie became the subject of a real-life mystery in 1926 when she disappeared for 11 days and then was discovered 200 miles from where her abandoned car had been found. Agatha Miller was born on September 15, 1890 in Torquay, southwestern England, the youngest of Clara and Frederick Miller's three children. Although she would also become a successful playwright responsible for the longest-running play in theater history, The Mousetrap, Agatha now best known for the 66 detective novels, man, 66, and 14 collections of short stories written under her married name, Christie. In 1912, uh, 22-year-old Agatha attended a local dance where she met and fell in love with a 23-year-old man named Archibald Archie Christie, qualified aviator who had been posted to Exeter. Archie was sent to France when World War I broke out, and then they married on Christmas Eve in 1914. While Archie continued to fight across Europe for the next few years, Agatha kept busy as a voluntary aid detachment nurse in Torquay's Red Cross Hospital. During this time, a number of Belgian refugees had settled in Torquay and were said to have provided the inspiration for the fledgling writer's most famous Belgian detective, Hercule, uh, uh, it's Piaro. Hercule Piaro. She picked a weird fucking name. Um, I watched a lot of uh, videos actually of uh, various people like... Um, Talking about movies uh, featuring this character, like promoting it, really struggling to say this. But I think that's it. Uh, at the encouragement of her older sister, Margaret, Agatha wrote the first of her many detective novels, The Mysterious Affair at Styles. She'd keep writing and publishing, uh, eventually finding enough success to buy her family a home in Berkshire, uh, in a state named Styles after, you know, uh, Styles from that novel. But not everything was good in the Christie home. Apparently, Agatha and Archie fought frequently, and Archie was having an affair with his secretary, Nancy Neal which is, you know, bound to cause some discord in the marriage. Uh, on the night of Friday, December 3rd, 1926, Agatha and Archie had a blowout fight. Archie packed up to stay with friends for the weekend. Agatha then left her daughter with the maid and disappeared. The next morning, Agatha's abandoned car was found several miles, miles away by Surrey police. The vehicle was partly submerged in some bushes, apparently the result of a car accident. The fact that the driver was missing, but the headlights were on and the suitcase and coat remained in the back seat fueled this mystery. Both Archie Christie and his mistress, Nancy Neal, were under suspicion for Agatha's dis disappearance. In the days that followed, a huge manhunt was undertaken by thousands of police officers and eager volunteers. Uh, officials even dredged a local lake, but Agatha was nowhere to be found. The case became so popularized that fellow mystery writer Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, originator of Sherlock Holmes, sought the help of a clairvoyant to find Agatha using one of her gloves as a guide. 
10 days later, the head waiter at the Hydropathic Hotel in Harrogate, Yorkshire, uh, contacted police with the startling news that a lively and outgoing South African guest by the name of Teresa Neal might actually be Agatha Christie. Archie traveled with the police to Yorkshire, took a seat in the corner of the hotel's dining room from where he watched his estranged wife walk in, take her place at another table, began reading a newspaper, uh, which heralded her own disappearance as front page news. When approached by her husband, Agatha seemed truly puzzled, like she really didn't recognize the man she'd been married to for 12 years. At the time, Archie declared his wife to be suffering from amnesia and possible concussion, which was later corroborated by two doctors. He'd say to newspapers, she has suffered from the most complete loss of memory, and I do not think she knows who she is. She does not know me, and she does not know where she is. I'm hoping that rest and quiet will restore her. How fucking terrible. Agatha herself claimed to have no recollection of where she had been or what had happened during that 11-day period. Some think she had a nervous breakdown, the result of her, of her mother's recent death and, of course, her husband's infidelity. Others say that the stunt was payback for Archie's affair with Nancy Neal. Still others say that Agatha, who made a living as a writer at that time, but certainly wasn't as famous as she would one day become, did the whole thing as a publicity stunt. I don't know about that, though. Uh, she wouldn't even write about the disappearance when she released her autobiography over 50 years later in 1977. She seemed embarrassed by it. Maybe she really did just forget who the fuck she was for uh, over a week. And again, that's so scary. That, that is one of my uh, worst fears. Like, like I've lost track of, of who I was a few times for no more than a few hours on hallucinogens, either too much acid or too much shrooms, but, but not like really totally lost. Not a fun feeling, but not totally gone. I, I still knew I was probably me. And I knew I was under the influence of a mind-altering drug. Uh, This is so different, so, so much scarier to just snap and forget who you are. If I had to choose between being permanently, like between permanently forgetting who I am or death, oh, death, no hesitation. I mean, what are we if not the collection of our memories? Also, how scary and sad to have your spouse suddenly have no fucking idea who you are or who your kids are, you know, or friends, et cetera. Just Just a wee bit stressful. Uh, strange disappearances like these possibly motivated by amnesia uh, still of course happen today numerous people right now somewhere in the world have inexplicably forgotten who they are Uh, let's look at a more recent case than Agatha's the case of uh, this is also fucking sad the case of Gabriel Nagy from 1987 let's let's once again wade out into the the waters of sadness because we're we're here already Uh, Gabriel Nagy an Australian married father of two kids disappears January 21st 1987 he never arrives home for lunch And then his burnt-out car is found on the side of the road. Because it was unusual for him to go anywhere without letting his family know, local authorities launch an investigation to see if they can find him. A couple of weeks later, a clue turns up when Nagy services long enough to withdraw money from his bank account. The investigation trail that follows soon leads investigators to a store in Newcastle where Nagy had purchased camping supplies. But then the case goes cold. With no more clues to go on, the family is left with only questions and grief. For the next two fucking decades... No sign of Nagy ever shows up. His wife and kids set out to have him legally declared dead. But before that could happen, a police officer does one final check through public records to see if anything might turn up. To everyone's surprise, it does. Nagy is still alive. Officer is able to track him down and speak with him and uh, discovers he has no memories of his past life aside from a few bits and pieces that would surface every now and again and not do much more than confuse him. During the 23 years he'd been missing, Nagy worked a series of odd menial jobs and then became homeless, was living on the street, and then a, a pastor brought him in to be a caretaker. 
Uh, the day he was found, Nagy sat down, drafted a letter to his wife and daughter. Three days later, he gets a text message from his daughter, their first contact since his disappearance. Investigators would come to believe that a severe head injury caused Nagy to go into a disassociative fugue that he was not ever, ever, to, uh, ever able to fully climb out of. 46 years of his life as a father of two and husband just poof, vanish. Then after a 23-year break from who he was beginning in 2010, his memories start to come back. An article from 2012 said he truly remembered who he was overall, but a lot of specific memories still yet to return. Uh, not, not totally sure based on the, uh, the way the article is written, if he was back with his wife or not. I actually think, I actually think he was because she, you know, wouldn't declare him dead. I think she waited, but man, man, our minds so important, so fragile. Okay. Now that we looked at stories of amnesia, let's look at, at perhaps an even more confusing set of disappearances. People who, for some reason or another, just, just want to leave two more categories left people who disappear because they just want to get away and people who try to disappear and fail which I know a lot of these stories have kind of always been, but we'll do a couple more failure stories at the end. Uh, sometimes people disappear, yeah, just because they uh, they just want to fucking start over somewhere. Like we mentioned at the top of the show, they just can't let go of a persistent fantasy to live another life. Richard Hoagland is one of these people. Dick Hoagland. And this Richard really is a fucking dick. Uh, Dickard uh, looked to all the world like a family man, a business owner in Indianapolis who lived a comfortable life with his wife and two sons. Friends remembered him as an energetic man who was friendly, funny, and kind. And then all of that would change. Around 1990, Dickard started acting weird. Staying home in his room for hours, not talking much, you know, seemed depressed. His wife, Linda, you know, thought he was suffering from depression. She assumed it was common for middle-aged fathers to worry about work, family, bills. Uh, She didn't say much, didn't realize how much of a crazy midlife crisis he was having. Uh, She later wished, of course, she would have checked more in with him uh, when Dickard disappears. February 10th, 1993, Linda is at work, receives a call from Dickard. Uh, and his name, if you're a little bit confused, his name is Richard, but I'm gonna call him Dickard. Uh, he said he had a medical emergency and was going to the hospital. Linda offered to accompany him, but Dickard was like, no, no, I'm good. I'm fine. I'll, uh, you know, I'll see you tonight. Uh, as the hours pass and Linda doesn't hear from her husband, she starts getting worried. She calls several hospitals to see if he'd been admitted. None of them say they've heard of Dickard. Then Linda starts to get really worried, worried that Dickard has had a, a major accident and is maybe in a hospital somewhere as a John Doe. With no information, she feels helpless. Uh, She looks into Dickard's belongings for clues and finds something odd. While checking Dickard's possessions, she notices that all of Dickard's items are, uh, you know, home. He didn't even take a jacket on a cold February evening. She knew something was wrong. It puzzles her. Uh, Things would soon start to make even less sense. A couple days later, she gets a phone call from Dickard. Not good news. Dickard calls her to tell her he couldn't live with her anymore. And so he left. Before she could process his statement and react, he just hangs up. After a few hours, Dickard calls again, tells her, I don't want to go to jail. I'm not coming back. And then again, before she can respond, just hangs up. Uh, confused, upset, now deeply worried, Linda decides to file a police report. She doesn't even know for sure if the man on the phone is Dickard. He's acting so weird. Over the next week, Dickard calls Linda several more times. Uh, he'll only tell her what he wants to say and then, and then hang up. She never gets an opportunity to respond. The police track these phone calls, find out they're uh, made from very different places that are far away. One is from Venezuela. One's from Aruba. Another's from Florida. It baffles everyone how he's traveling to do this. Months then pass by with no new information. Then in May 1993, three months after he disappeared, Dickard sends a birthday card to his son, Matthew. A few months later, sends another birthday card, 50 bucks, to his son, Douglas. What a, what a great dad. I mean, I know he's not around, but hey, 50 bucks is 50 bucks. So what the fuck is happening? Uh, police are now looking for him, looking into the life he was leading before he bounced. They find his abandoned car. It has no signs of being the site of a violent altercation. Doesn't really offer any clues, though. 
Uh, they do find out Dicker was under severe financial duress, but still uh, no clue as to where he went. To ease some financial strain, Linda and her kids now moving with her parents. Uh, she files for divorce. The judge grants her divorce, orders Dickard, in absentia, of course, to pay off his debts. However, he never returns to do so. As Linda struggles to get by, police start to get suspicious of her now. They can't believe that Dickard has just randomly completely uprooted his life. And they think she has to know something about what's really going on. They start to think that Linda and Dickard uh, planned this incident to escape their financial burdens. And they speculated that Dickard, you know, he disappears first. Linda and the kids are going to follow later. The police also suspect that Dickard is involved in some illegal business transaction, but Linda keeps insisting that she doesn't know anything about this. Uh, And then around this point, the story gets even weirder. Linda starts getting paranoid. She feels like someone's following her. Her letters begin to be delivered already open. Uh, She even spots a recording device in her room. Linda thinks that either the police are doing this or someone from Dickard's secret life is targeting her. She no longer feels safe at her parents' house. She and the kids pack up, move to McCordsville, Indiana, just a little town, a outer suburb of Indianapolis, population of about 7,500. Bit by bit, she works on feeling safer. By the end of 2003, with no information on his whereabouts, the state now declares Dickard dead, and his trail goes cold for over 20 years. Then in 2016, 23 years after he disappeared, a detective contacts Linda about Dickard. Initially, it annoyed Linda that the police were again digging into the past she desperately wanted to forget, but then a detective tells her they found him and that it was time for her to get the answer she deserved. In 1993, after Dickard left home, this motherfucker beat it for Florida. Gets there, he rents a room from a man, Edward Siminski, or Samansky, who had recently lost his son, Terry, to a fishing accident. Over the uh, following weeks, Dickard manages to get more and more details about Terry's life and gets a copy of his death certificate. Using the death certificate, Dickard then obtains Terry's birth certificate from Ohio. Mm -hmm. With the birth certificate now in hand, he applies by mail for an Alabama driver's license, uses the Alabama driver's license then to obtain a Florida driver's license. Then he'll spend more than two decades living as Terry Samansky. Ed's son, back from the dead, kind of. Two years after disappearing in 1995, uh, now known as Terry, Dickard marries a woman, Mary Hickman, has another son. They settle down in... Uh, Zephyr Hills, Florida, little town of about 16,000 just northeast of Tampa. This motherfucker, while his previous wife and two sons worry that he's dead, uh, maybe living on the streets somewhere, not knowing uh, who he is, where he is, while they mourn his loss, while they suffer from his financial burdens he put the, the family in, he's out there killing it, living it up with a new life. Go rip his balls off, Bojangles. He doesn't deserve him. Go find that fucking uh, chicken skin duffel bag and tear it to shreds. Uh, While Linda struggles as a single mom raising two boys, Terry Dickard kills it in the real estate game in Florida, soon owns multiple properties, and gets himself a a private pilot's license just for funsies. So how was his old life then connected to his new one in 2013? Well, that year, the real Terry's nephew, the one who died, wanted to know about his uncle and his family in general. So he started searching for his relatives on Ancestry.com. And on that website, he finds records about Terry Samansky. Finds out that real Terry died in 1991. Then doing some online sleuthing, also finds out that someone named Terry Samansky began a new life around the time his uncle died and not far from where his uncle died, right? And connects it to this guy uh, lived you know, in a relative's house, lived in his uncle's father's ho- house. Uh, he realized this motherfucker is impersonating his dead uncle, but he and his family are scared that this, uh, you know, uh, f- phony could be dangerous. What kind of person assumes a dead man's identity? So they stay silent for a little while. But then in 2016, the nephew doesn't want to stay quiet anymore, goes to the police, tells him everything. The police arrest Dickard Hoagland in July of 2016, 23 years after he went missing. I mean, I wonder if a part of him had been waiting that whole time for this to happen. 
Initially, Dickard feigns ignorance. Adamantly keeps telling people he is Terry Samansky. However, he knows the police have him when they show him the original Terry's death certificate. Now the question on everyone's mind is not how he did this, but why? Why did Dickard Hoagland become Terry Samansky? Why did he give up everything in Indianapolis to move to Florida, start a completely new life? Initially, the police thought that Dickard had run away to avoid financial burden. Uh, and from his phone calls with his wife, they assumed he got dragged into some illegal business. And then he felt that the only way out was to go away. But that's not true. Dickard is just a narcissistic fucking sociopath. He simply said he just didn't want to live with his family anymore. So instead of getting a divorce and having to pay alimony, you know, fuck that. He just packed up and left. And in doing so, he committed a whole laundry list of crimes, identity theft, loan defaults, and more. However, after reviewing the case, the police realized they can't charge him for most of these crimes because of statute of limitations. This slippery son of a bitch. He'd committed those crimes over 20 years earlier. Eventually, the police are able to at least charge Dickard with identity theft. And in 2017, a judge sentences, uh, sentences him to two years for impersonation and identity fraud. Linda, of course, doesn't feel that this is uh, quite fair for completely unnecessarily uh, you know, fucking her and the kids over. So she sues Dickard for $1.8 million for unpaid child support, mental stress, and divorce proceedings, and she fucking wins. Hail Nimrod and fuck that guy. But since Dickard didn't have a job after his arrest, he had no way of paying that money. As of 2018, the then 65-year-old uh, Dickard was uh, out of jail, working to pay off the money he owes Linda, and he'll probably be doing that for the rest of his life. Dude got away with it, uh, what he did for a long time, but then it came crashing down, bit him in the ass. Uh, not sure if his new wife left him, but I gotta think odds are good she did. Another story of a person who just wanted to get away, uh, though did it in a very different way than old fake Terry Real Dick, is uh, Philip Cesarego. Philip had long wanted to be a member of the SAS, Britain's Elite Special Air Service. Born in Hereford, England, to a farming family, he dreamed of the prestige of the military. 1971, at the age of 18, he enlisted in the British Army as a gunner in the Royal Artillery. After two years' service in 1973, he applies to join the SAS regiment at the age of 21. But during aptitude tests for the SAS, he narrowly fails to pass due to an injury and is held over in regiment's training, uh, a regiment's training cadre, cadre uh, pending physical recovery to try again. After several months with the regiment's training cadre, he chooses to abandon his application to join, leaves the British Army in December of 1975, but does not abandon hopes of being an army man. After the army, he works on the family farm where he grows restless. Soon he finds a job using his military training as a mercenary soldier with ex-members of the SAS, seeing uh, service as an advisor to the Sri Lankan army in uh, counterinsurgency warfare in 1979, and then in Afghanistan and Pakistan in the early 1980s. During the 80s and 90s, uh, he's involved in conflicts in the Balkans, during the Bosnia War, and even makes some trips to South America and South Africa. Loved military life, loved fighting, uh, hated that he wasn't actually SAS, and he uh, had a few life real, or a few real life problems he also didn't want to deal with anymore. So he decides to reinvent himself. In 1991, he fakes his own death, uh, gives the impression that he had been killed by a car bomb in Croatia, possibly trying to get out of pain maintenance to his estranged wife and young daughter at their family home in Hereford. Uh, afterwards, breaking off all contact with his family to maintain the ruse, relocates to Belgium, living there under the assumed name of Philip Stevenson. Uh, Cesarego's family continues to believe that he is dead until one evening a decade later in late 2001. They don't run into him at the store or bump into him somewhere else. Now they, uh, they see him on TV. This arrogant dipshit goes on TV when he's supposed to be dead. Now he's going by the name of Tom Carew. And Tom Carew 
uh, says he's a member of Britain's secretive and elite special air service, SAS. Uh, writing an account of his time in the Hindu Kush or Kush and other places in Afghanistan, training the Muhadin to fight the Soviets during the invasion in the late 1970s. Uh, he goes on to give tons of interviews to British evening news shows, uh, even writes a book about his fake experiences, kind of a mishmash of some real, some fake in his book, Jihad. He claims he was the first British soldier to be sent into Afghanistan to assess the Muhadin's capabilities and train them because he's the fucking most important soldier in the history of the SAS. He writes about how he killed Soviet soldiers. Quote, the butt of my deadly uh, Kalashnikov pressed into my shoulder as I let go a long, vicious burst of fire. A Russian special forces soldier and two Afghan regular troops clambering over the wall only noticed me as they were poised in midair. But then it was too late. My weapon bucked and climbed as it spewed out bullets. They had no chance. All three were dying as they flopped awkwardly into the dust. He gave endless media interviews in the wake of uh, September 11th attacks, offering his expertise on how the Taliban would fight. Also said he was going to write a follow-up book on how Britain secretly armed uh, Croats and Muslims as the former Yugoslavia was about to break up through an arms dealer whom the CIA had, had suspected of involvement in the hijacking of the Italian cruise liner Achille Laro in 1995. But then BBC reporter George Eichen got a tip from a former member of the regiment saying that Philip wasn't who he said he was. Reporters then lured Philip to the BBC on the pretense of an interview about Afghanistan. But then on arrival, he was aggressively evident, uh, evidentially confronted mid-interview by Eichen accusing him of being an imposter who had invented a non-existent career with the Special Air Service. Philip walked out, but the damage was done. His publishing career came to an end. Medialis reported that after he was exposed, he was living in Belgium in impoverished circumstances, selling ex-army surplus military materials and running survival training courses. And despite the fact that he had engaged in active combat on numerous occasions, very few people had any sympathy for this liar. His daughter, Claire, who uh, Cesarego had abandoned as a child, said, basically, if I'm going to be blunt about it, I think he is a twat. I love when people call dudes twats. He never served in the SAS. He's just a fantasist who's trying to make money on the back of other people's reputations. There are a lot of former SAS men who have scores to settle with him, but they thought he was dead. Now they know different, and I wouldn't care if somebody killed him because he's brought it all on himself. Hot damn. She is not happy, you know, and rightfully furious. Hey, you fucking abandoned her. Uh, she added, dad was obsessed with wanting to be in the regiment. He took the SAS selection test a couple times, but failed. That really crushed him. I think he decided if he couldn't be the real thing, he would pretend. He always wore a half moon mustache because that was the fashion amongst all real SAS soldiers at the time and walked with a swagger with his chest puffed out. He used to wear desert boots and jeans or combat trousers and a check shirt and would hang out in the pubs where SAS men drank. The saga of Philip, uh, uh, Cesarego would come to an end in 2008. In January 2009, uh, Philip Cesarego's badly decomposed, decomposed body was found in a rented Antwerp garage where he'd been covertly living for several months. Uh, the remains had been there since the summer before, so he died in the summer of 2008. His death wasn't discovered until Cesarego's landlord came banging at the door last November to ask why his rent had not been paid. In the garage, he found Cesarego, 55, lying with his few belongings, small cooker in a bed, evidently dead from accidental carbon monoxide poisoning. His body was subsequently cremated, his ashes buried in the graveyard of St. Martin's Church in Hereford. No mention of uh, SAS on his tombstone. Dude, uh, you know, could have probably gotten away with the mercenary life built on false pretenses if he just wouldn't have gone so public with his lies. All right, now on to our last batch of mysterious disappearances. Now, just two more. Two more examples. Some uh, disappearance fails. And this first one is, is the weirdest story from today. 
This is just a super, super odd story. Uh, back in the 1700s, self-appointed Lord, you know it's going to be interesting when there's a self-appointed Lord, and it, uh, Timothy Dexter, an 18th century American businessman and noted eccentric, decided to disappear and got caught in an extremely bizarre way. Timothy Dexter was born in Malden, Massachusetts, January 22nd, 1747. Uh, the first Dexter had immigrated from Ireland a century before. His family had little money and young Timothy received little education. He went to work as an indentured servant on a farm at the age of eight. 14, he left the farm for uh, Charlestown to work for an apprentice dressing leather for breeches and gloves. He'd relocate to Newburyport sometime around 1767. In Newburyport, Dexter bought land and married Elizabeth Frothingham, a modestly well-off widow nine years older than he. She already had four kids and a house. He set up shop in the basement of his wife's house selling moose hide trousers. Fucking moose hide trousers, bro. Gotta get those new moose hide trousers. That's a that's the trousers you need. Uh, gloves, hides, and blubber. By the end of the American Revolution, he'd managed to save several thousand dollars doing this. A lot of money at the time. And he would soon invest this money in continental currency, the first form of currency in America. It had become almost worthless because of massive inflation. In November of 1776, $19 million in continental currency had been issued. One could still buy a dollar's worth of goods for a dollar in this paper. By November of 1778, $31 million more dollars had been issued, and it took $6 in paper to buy the same amount of goods. Uh, by November 1779, $226 million was in circulation, and it would take $40 in paper money to buy $1 worth of goods. Not worth a continental became a common phrase used to denote the utter lack of a good's value. Uh, Realized that Americans were willing to part with the now discontinued continentals for anything they could get, Dexter gathered up all his savings and his wife's savings, purchased boatloads of the bills for fractions of pennies on the dollar. Fucking bold move. Most people thought it was idiotic. He was essentially, uh, excuse me, excuse me, man, uh, bargaining his entire livelihood on the chance that this currency would somehow soon regain its value. And then it did. His huge gamble paid off big time. When the U.S. Constitution was ratified in the 1790s, it was stipulated that continentals could be traded in for treasury bonds at 1% of face value. Since he had purchased massive amounts of this currency for far less than 1% of its face value, Dexter became instantly and astronomically wealthy. He bought a magnificent house on State Street, as well as two fucking ships. Uh, With a couple more shrewd business investments, uh, he made even more money, you know, using his ships to transport goods. Now he wants social acceptance and respect, prestige. He wants the cool kids of Newburyport, the upper crust of their high society there, to embrace him as one of their own. But they don't like him because he's a fucking weirdo. And he'll go mad trying to get them to change their minds. He literally now starts calling himself Lord Dexter. And any kid who calls him Lord Dexter uh, could expect a shiny quarter. Uh, Most adults could perhaps expect dinner and drinks. Uh, Then he would take things a step further. Uh, He created an outdoor museum on the grounds of his new lavish home with 40 garishly painted wooden statues of diverse figures such as uh, French King Louis XVI, Adam and Eve, John Hancock. Uh, The first three U.S. presidents uh, stood astride a giant arch. He always had at least one statue of himself, of course, with the following motto engraved beneath it. I am the first in the East. I am the first in the West and the greatest philosopher in the Western world. Fucking humble guy. Uh, Dexter would often repaint his statues inscriptions once after a painter wrote a Declaration of Independence under the Thomas Jefferson statue. Uh, Dexter demanded he correct it to the correct uh, Declaration of Constitution, <laughs> which is, of course, not correct. When the painter was like, nah, I think I think my inscription is the correct one. And it was uh, Dexter then grabs a long rifle and shoots this guy, narrowly misses him. 
and he and he repeats constitution with a solemn tone and then the painter obliges uh, most famously in imitation of the king of england dexter now hires his own poet laureate a uh, poet laureate uh, a hapless 20 year old fucking dude he just found at the market just found this guy selling fucking halibut from a wheelbarrow it's like you're my poet laureate laureate jesus after learning that the great Italian poets were crowned with mistletoe, Dexter now concocts his new lyricist, a, a coronet of parsley. That was what he had in the garden at the moment. And forces this poor son of a bitch to write and recite fawning poems that, uh, you know, uh, paint him in a grandiose light. This guy's such a fucking weirdo. 1802, he publishes a 24-page book that criticizes the clergy, politicians, and randomly his wife, full of misspellings, and also had literally no punctuation. Probably should have hired an editor. He called it a pickle for knowing once. Okay, he starts handing this book out for free at first. Somehow it does grow popular. I don't know if it's a joke or what. Like, you gotta check out how fucking stupid this book is. It goes through eight reprintings. In the second edition, he adds a page that consists of 13 lines of nothing but punctuation marks (laughs) with instructions for readers to distribute them as they please. I don't know if he's being sarcastic there or serious. Uh, One contemporary described this book as an egotistical, opinionated, coarse defense of Dexter written by Dexter against all enemies who are anti-Dexter. (laughs) Uh, so he still doesn't get the social standing he craves if anything he's becoming more of a social pariah so now he decides to fake his own death in 1806 Uh, he starts by commissioning a tomb a grandiose well-ventilated room that occupied the entire basement of his fine summer home interesting call to convert a basement into a tomb Uh, don't think I've been in a house like that before or heard of one Uh, excuse me uh, where's your bathroom Uh, uh, downstairs and uh, take a right first door uh, next to the family tomb fuck then he hires the best cabinet maker in all of massachusetts to craft a coffin from the finest mahogany wood available so fine that upon its completion uh dexter takes to sleeping in it for several weeks with great comfort and satisfaction god he's a fucking lunatic with all these expensive and elaborate preparations now done dexter enlists a few of his trustworthy men to organize a mock funeral and disseminate small cards with news of his death to the community to make it even more real tells his wife and kids about it and then demands that they cry and appear incredibly distraught to make it seem more realistic. On the day of the ceremony, after lots of invitations are sent out, some <laughs> some 3,000 people show up. Like Dexter wanted, it was a grand affair uh, where only the fanciest wines, most exotic liquors are distributed. Uh, from below a board of wooden planks, he fucking hides down there and observes the scene with glee. Everything has seemed to be going along smoothly. Uh, his son is, quote, sufficiently drunk to weep without much effort. Uh, his daughter's head is buried in her hands. Uh, but then he panics. He, he sees his smiling wife, tearless. He approaches her secretly in the kitchen and then proceeds to, quote, cane her for lack of effort. This maniac straight up fucking beat her with a cane for not fake crying at his fake funeral. And this causes a lot of commotion. Not every day that a funeral is interrupted by the person who is supposed to be dead, caning the fuck out of his wife in the kitchen for not grieving enough. As the other guests enter the room, they're now openly greeted by supposedly dead Dexter. And this guy's completely lost his mind. Uh, the red-handed idiot then proceeds to go about carousing with his own mourners as if that's not fucking weird. As if this whole stunt never happened and it's just a regular party. Um, shortly after his fake funeral, after getting caught trying to disappear in some confusing, misguided way to have people think he was a really important person, I guess. I don't understand any of this. On October 26, 1806, 59-year-old Lord Timothy Dexter does pass away uh, for real this time. And his real funeral, not well attended. <laughs> He never got the level of uh, social acceptance he wanted. Uh, and a little kicker at the end, uh, Newberry Report's Board of Health rejected his request to be buried in the tomb. 
he'd concocted years earlier on the grounds that it's not fucking sanitary to put a tomb in the basement of your house. Instead, the Lord is laid to rest in a quaint cemetery in the hills beneath a modest tombstone. One more now. Much more uh, modern disappearance failure story. Uh, also super weird. People are crazy. The case of a California woman named Sherry uh, Pup, uh, Puppini. Sherry Papini, there we go. Sherry Papini, who claimed to be kidnapped in uh, 2016. Like Lord Dexter, Sherry's very dumb bullshit disappearance story uh, would uh, unravel. Uh, Sherry, a mother too, went out in November 2016 for a jog near her home in Shasta County and then disappeared. Her husband returned home from work that day to find his wife is missing, that their kids had not been picked up from daycare. Using the Find My iPhone app, Mr. Uh, Papini uh, locates his wife's phone and her earbuds with strands of her hair attached about a mile from their home. Then calls the police, goes into full panic mode. Authorities and, her, uh, and neighbors in Reading band together on exhaustive searches for the missing woman and form a tight-knit, tight-knit circle of support around her husband, Keith, and the couple's young kids. Uh, a GoFundMe account for the family raises more than $49,000. A story is covered by news outlets around the globe. Then, three weeks later, Thanksgiving Day, she is found alone on Interstate Highway, on an interstate highway, excuse me, 140 miles from home after a truck driver spotted her there. She was emaciated, covered in bruises, burns, and rashes. She had a chain around her waist, clamps around her wrists. Uh, her long blonde hair had been chopped off. Then she gave the police a very confusing account of what happened to her. Uh, she told investigators she had been abducted and branded by two women who kept her chained in a closet. These assailants supposedly wore masks, spoke Spanish, and held her at gunpoint. Her captors had leashed her to a pole inside a closet, a bucket of kitty litter serving as her toilet, one of them uh, in her 40s uh, and 50s, Sherry said, and the other in her 30s. She remembered a few highly specific details. She described the older woman as really mean with breath that smelled like sweetened coffee. She said she spent much of captivity chained in a room with boarded up windows and that the women played loud music. Also said the assailants were part of some human trafficking ring, uh, told her she was going to be sold, told her she'd be bought by a cop and that her family would never find her. This information did not help police track down her captors. Wouldn't be until the spring of 2017 that investigators found a piece of evidence that would lead them to the shocking conclusion that Sherry Papini had never been abducted. Uh, they found male DNA on sweatpants and underwear that she was wearing when she was found Thanksgiving Day 2016. Soon they determined that the DNA did not belong to any female abductors, of course, right? Uh, nor did it belong to Papini's husband. So whose DNA was it? Took investigators until 2019 before they could fully decode the DNA and get a match. That's when they requested a familial DNA search technique that searches offender DNA da uh, databases uh, for, you know, fathers, sons, brothers, et cetera, of unknown perpetrators. We've talked about that for a while now since the uh, Golden State Killer episode. Then in March of 2020, investigators are notified that a potential male relative of the unknown male whose DNA was found on, uh, Jesus Christ, Papini's clothing, I keep wanting to put another syllable in there, uh, had been identified. Uh, Papanini, a Papanini. Let me get that on my system. Uh, and that family member was related to an ex-boyfriend of Panini's. <laughs> oh, that, that is how you say it. You know what? It keeps reminding me of the fucking sandwich of a panini. It's papini. Oh, there we go. Three months later, fucking sandwich lady. No, June, June 9th, investigators collect a bottle of honest honey green tea from the trash outside of her ex-boyfriend's apartment. The following day, a law enforcement lab concludes the DNA obtained from the mouth area of the honest honey green tea bottle matched the unknown male DNA collected from papini's clothing. The DNA on Sherry's pants was her ex-boyfriend's. What the fuck is going on? August 10th, 2020, investigators interview the ex-boyfriend. He admits that he had helped Papini run away because she told him that her husband had abused her. This uh, turned out this is not true. After further questioning, the boyfriend said that he and Papini had communicated over prepaid phones, concocted a scheme, a stupid scheme to pick her up in Reading, drive her back to his two-bedroom apartment in Costa Mesa. Uh, 
During her stay, Papini was purposely trying to lose weight. She chopped off her own hair, created the injuries while staying with him, including hitting herself to create bruises and burning herself on her arms, according to the later indictment. The boyfriend would even help her create some of the fake injuries, this is so random, by throwing a fucking hockey puck at her. How do they arrive at hockey puck? Uh, so, um, what, uh, should you just, um, like, hit me or something? God, oh, God, no, that's too abusive. I'm not comfortable with that, that's too up close and personal. I'm not gonna put my hands on you. Um, what if you just, like, hit me with a bat? No, no, that's more violent, it's still too close, too personal. Can you throw a baseball at me? Uh, I could do that, but I don't, I don't have a baseball. What do you have? I have a hockey puck. You know what? Let me get that and fucking wing it around. That'll do some damage. Uh, after the hockey puck whooping, uh, he brings a wood-burning tool or buys a wood-burning tool from Hobby Lobby and brands her right shoulder. <laughs> the former boyfriend allegedly told investigators he wasn't sure of Papini's intentions during her stay with him, but he believed they might end up in a romantic relationship again. Uh-huh. Why would you jump back in with someone this fucking crazy? Oh, I know. Sex. I would bet my life uh, the sex between these two was not boring. Hello, Safina? Maybe, I don't know. Uh, but then things weren't working out with her hockey puck uh, hurtling lover, like Sherry hoped they would. She wasn't any happier being away from her family. Uh, remember that her husband actually didn't beat her. And after these stage injuries, Sherry changed her mind, wants to go back home to her old life. Shortly before Thanksgiving, uh, Papini's, uh, fucking goddamn, Papini informed her ex that she missed her kids and wanted to return home. So he drove her back to Northern California on Thanksgiving day, dropped her off on a country road where she was later found with that chain around her waist. Almost six years later, March 3rd, 2022, Papini was arrested and charged with making false statements to a federal agent and mail fraud. The fraud charges stem from more than $30,000 in therapy and ambulance services the prosecutor said the California Victim Compensation Board paid for. What a fucking idiot. Altogether, it's estimated that Papini's uh, little you know ruse cost tax- taxpayers more than $150,000 in resources used to investigate her claims and staged uh, the abduction. Uh, she was taken into custody at her children's piano practice. Papini was released on $120,000 bail. During her virtual court hearing, she was told she had to surrender her passport, ordered to participate in a psychiatric program. Yeah, good call. Papini pled guilty in April to lying to the FBI, defrauding federal, state, and local governments out of more than 150 grand, currently scheduled to be sentenced on September 19th. Her disappearance, she got away with it for a while, but once again, all came crashing down upon her. Okay, now with all these stories swirling around in her heads, uh, let's get out of these vignettes. Try to draw some conclusions from all the insanity we just heard. Various people have disappeared throughout history for a wide variety of reasons and continue to do so. Sometimes they show back up. Sometimes they don't. Sometimes they start new lives to avoid problems in their current ones. Sometimes they literally just forget who they are and they get lost. Still hate thinking about that possibility. Sometimes people successfully lead new lives under new identities for decades before getting caught. How many don't ever get caught though? That's what I keep thinking about. I know the disappearance expert Frank Ahern says that it's almost impossible to get away with faking your own death. What about just disappearing and then reappearing somewhere else and establishing a new identity? How do you help people with that? You can get fake passports, other fake identification documents. If you want to go that far, not not worried about committing uh, crimes, especially in the dark web. They don't always work, but how many do? We'll never know. We'll never know how many people are pulling this shit off right now. Is one of them in your neighborhood? Are you working with one of them? Friends with one of them? The child of one of them? Are you dating or married to one of them? And finally, if you're thinking about disappearing, unless you are convinced you'll be killed if you don't, maybe change your mind. It sounds like an awful lot of work to reinvent yourself as someone new. It sounds like a really stressful way to live, to have to always be so careful you're not exposed. 
Maybe, uh, I don't know, just try and deal with the life you have. Face your demons and handle your fucking business. Grab that chicken skin duffel bag. Nut up. Uh, do what you need to do to right any wrongs in your current life. God, I love that fucking silly duffel bag term. Uh, time now for today's top five takeaways. Time suck. Top five takeaways. Number one, uh, we have covered just a few of the many, many stories of people who disappeared and sometimes reappeared under mysterious circumstances. Sometimes those circumstances tend not to be uh, so mysterious, actually. As we saw from privacy expert Frank Ahern, uh, there are many reasons why someone might disappear and the possibility of actually uh, disappearing not as remote as it might seem, even in our world of technology and data. In fact, sometimes you can make that data work for you, putting out false leads so no one will hopefully ever find you. Of course, this was all a lot easier in the past when shoddy records and fewer communication networks meant that you could start over pretty much anytime, anywhere, provided your wife or, you know, somebody didn't track you down. Number two, though you could potentially disappear, the crimes you might commit on the way to your new life could land you in a lot of legal hot water. Even though it is not actually illegal to disappear and or fake your death, uh, it is illegal to do a lot of the things people do when they do fake their death or do disappear. You know, of course, if you try to adopt someone's identity, that's identity fraud. And if you're doing it for criminal reasons, like to get a life insurance payout or to avoid going to prison, that is definitely a crime. Number three, the human urge to disappear is perhaps a very deep-rooted one and one we've been dealing with for thousands of years. It was referenced in the Talmud. Political leaders have been disappearing for centuries, uh, as recently as the 21st century. Once the Nazis disappeared from Germany after World War II, sought refuge in South America, with only some of them being brought to actual justice. Number four, amnesia, definitely the thing, uh, is terrifying. Hard to say how much of a role it plays in most mysterious disappearances. Uh, disassociative fugue, formerly called fugue state or psychogenic fugue, is a subtype of disassociative amnesia. Involves loss of memory for personal autobiographical information combined with unexpected and sudden travel and sometimes setting up a new identity. Yee. This condition happens in about 1.8% of the population, but since it's hard to confirm and test for, we're still up for debate whether or not it's played a role in some of the most popular mysterious disappearance cases. But it's not up for debate that John Darwin had amnesia. He just faked his death to get an insurance payout and got photographed in Panama uh, balling out. Man, my mouth is not cooperating today. Come on. Uh, Number five, new info. Let's get paranormal. One area of mysterious disappearances and reappearances I haven't talked about today. Uh, Over on the other podcast, I have, you know, with my co-host and wife, Lindsay, scared to death. Uh, We recently covered a mysterious and super unsettling disappearance and reappearance in episode 145. Uh, The strange tale of Linda Artiaga. To get the full scary version, you know, you can listen to episode 145. You'll never escape. Uh, I'll give a little summary here, though. On September 22nd, 2012, 53-year-old Linda Artiaga decided to go on a hike with her 56-year-old brother, Eddie Huff, in the Arkansas Ozarks, near the tiny, roughly 200-person town of St. Joe, halfway between Springfield, Missouri, and Little Rock, Arkansas. After leaving to find a fishing spot, over two days passed without anyone hearing a word from Linda or Eddie. And then Eddie came out of the woods. He and his sister had gotten separated, and he just couldn't find her. That's what he said. Over 100 volunteers combed the woods to find her over the next few days. They didn't. But then almost a week into this ordeal, she just wanders out of the woods and has quite the story to tell. She said she had no idea how she'd gotten separated from her brother. One moment she was hiking with him, dressed as she, uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, normally described, you know, like as she had, you know, set out that day. The next, she's opening her eyes as if she'd been asleep or unconscious, finds herself alone and shoeless. It was like her memory had simply shorted out. She had no idea where Eddie was. She assumed somewhere back down the trail, worried he'd been hurt somehow. 
She then told police that while trying to find help for Eddie, she came across some other hikers. At first, she was relieved to find them, but then she uh, quickly realized there was something wrong about them. When she called out to them, they acted like they didn't hear her. She screamed, she yelled, they never even turned around. Never reacted in any way. It was like she was completely invisible, unable to be heard. Later, she would wonder if those hikers had been of this world. Or if they were of this world, if somehow she was no longer of this world at that moment. She kept walking, kept searching for Eddie or someone to help Eddie. As her surreal night wore on, Linda began to see another strange sight. As she stumbled through the brush, she now saw shadowy figures who seemed to be hiding from her in the woods. They were never close, always in the distance, always watching. Just around bends, she'd catch a glimpse of a hand or head, only to see it slink behind a tree trunk. Sometimes she'd lose sight of these shadowy figures for minutes, but she knew they were still close by. She could feel them, feel them watching her. She would say about them, these people were hiding in the bushes. They were weird people, very weird people. And disturbingly, other women who've gotten lost near where Linda disappeared have also later reported that they were followed, even chased by what they've described as not quite men. Over the past several decades, hundreds and hundreds of hikers have disappeared and never reappeared, last seen wandering off into America's forests. How many of them were also watched by the shadowy figures that Linda and others said watched them? Did those things take any of them somewhere? Is that why we can't find some of them? Yet another way to disappear to worry about. Time suck. Top five takeaways. Mysterious disappearances has been sucked. I hope you enjoyed a different kind of episode. I want to give my mouth a workout for some reason. I think it's about the people disappearing in uh, different countries and stuff, different uh, pronunciation types. Ay ay. Uh, now for some thanks. Thanks to Bad Magic Productions, uh, the team here. Thanks to Queen of Magic, Bad uh, Queen of Bad Magic, Lindsay Cummins. Jesus Christ. Thanks to Logan Keith for production today. Uh, thanks to Bit Elixir for upkeep on the Time Suck app. Art Warlock, Logan Keith, creating the merch at BadMagicMerch.com. Uh, running socials with Liz Hernandez. Uh, thanks again to Sophie Evans for the initial research this week and composing the overall narrative structure before I got in there and fucking wrecked around in it. Uh, also, thanks to the All-Seen Eyes moderating the Cult of Curious private Facebook page. Page, And finally, thanks to Becky, Jesse, and the Mod Squad for making sure Discord keeps running smooth. And uh, and Reddit, r slash timesuck. Get over on Reddit and check that out. So fun. Uh, next week, we're going to look into the story of Peter Nygaard, the Canadian Jeffrey Epstein, who is uh, still alive, behind bars, but still alive. Another sexual predator who was uh, active longer than Epstein, uh, like Epstein, used wealth, power, intimidation, you know, in a very similar way to allegedly abuse young women for literally five decades. The old creepy fuck in jail now in Canada waiting trial. His story is uh, disturbing. He allegedly intentionally impregnated some of his victims, then had them get abortions, then harvested stem cells from the fetuses to try and reverse the aging process. Uh, the women were impregnated for this reason. He uh, tended to impregnate very young women, very, very young, to have their fetuses harvested. Like he really did, uh, very likely, uh, some dark Illuminati shit. And in addition to talking about him, I also interview a very well-known pedo exposer who did a docu-series on Nygaard. I'm guessing you've heard of him, Chris Hansen. Uh, to catch a predator, Chris Hansen. I almost always turn down interview requests. Not what we do here, but I really wanted to meet him and get his thoughts on why sexual predators do what they do. Uh, he gave, not surprisingly, some great insights. Uh, we've already recorded the interview that I'm excited to share with you. So check out next week's suck. Uh, right now, let's head on over to this week's Time Sucker updates. Updates. Get your Time Sucker updates. Starting off with a very sweet message from a very cool meat sack, Tim Young. And Tim writes, 
Dear Suckmaster, just a note to tell you how much enjoyment I get from Time Suck. I love the jokes, characters, your impressions, and your podcast format. Well, thank you. I do appreciate that. Uh, I'm probably one of your older listeners. Uh, I'm 55. I live in Indiana. Throughout my life, I've never really fit in or been cool until my wife, who also is a bit socially awkward, and I went on vacation to Glacier National Park in Montana a couple months ago. In preparation for the trip, I needed a new sweatshirt, and having just started listening to Time Suck, I thought it would be neat to get a Whipple Chill sweatshirt. Before our trip, I wore it a lot. In fact, my wife once said to me, you in that goddamn Whipple sweatshirt. What is big deal? Uh, she doesn't listen to the show. Uh, I just would laugh it off. While hiking on our trip, we were on a very busy trail. And we passed a group of people uh, going the opposite way. I was wearing my Whipple Chill sweatshirt. And as soon as the group passed by us, I heard someone in the group say, did you see that dude had a Whipple sweatshirt? Oh, I wish I had one. I was on cloud nine for a moment uh, because I truly felt I was trendy and cool, even if it was only briefly. I listen to Time Suck Daily at my job. I really like your dark humor and subject matter. I'm a spacer now, so I can catch up on the secret suck too. Thanks for making me another meat sacks. Feel like we're part of something and that even guys like me can be cool. Thanks for all you do for us regards, Tim. Tim, you are fucking cool. You're a sweetheart and you're a cool sweetheart. And I don't think you're one of our older listeners. The age range for Time Suck is extremely uh, uh, varied. It's very, very wide. Next time your wife teases you about that sweatshirt, you know what? Just uh, shoot her a steely stare. And scream, fuck you, fuck your family, drink Whipple, or laugh it off, you know, or that. Uh, I hope you had fun in Glacier. I love that place. Gorgeous park. I cannot wait to get outside more this summer. So keep being cool as fuck, Tim. Love you, man. Uh, Now a sad sucker, temporarily, asking for advice. A sad sucker who will one day be a stronger, happier sucker. Marvelous meat sack Andrew Molina writes, Dear Dan, what's up, Master Sucker? Suck nasty, Whipple pimp. (laughs) <laughs> I've been a longtime fan of your comedy, got into time suck and scared to death over the past year. Absolutely great shows. Thank you, thank you. Uh, I'm writing you to uh, ask for some advice. I recently separated from my daughter's mother after eight years together. I have pretty severe depression and anxiety and I'm finding it difficult to get my head around this new reality that I never thought I would find myself in. I wanted to know if you have any tips for moving on with your life, how to be okay when you have to co-parent with someone who broke your heart. Greatly appreciate any nuggets of wisdom you can give me. Uh, if you read this on the show, even better. I listen every week. Three out of five stars wouldn't change a thing. Praise the entire Bad Magic team and keep on sucking, Andrew. Uh, well, Andrew, what I wish I would have done after my divorce, uh, you know, I was uh, pretty depressed too, um, was was get into counseling. I I think I went I went once. I wanted to go to marriage counseling. Uh, that wasn't an option. And uh, we did like one kind of like separation counseling session. I wanted to do more than that. That was an option. I did have the option of going to myself. And then I, I just did not pursue that like I should have. I, I went once or maybe twice and didn't really deal with anything. Um, wish I would have done that. Also, get into positive things you control. Think about what you can control, what you can't control. You can't control uh, your ex's actions. What you can control is exercise. Get your endorphins going. You can control you know, uh, making, make, doing your best effort to get some sleep. Uh, if you're having trouble sleeping, weed gummies work for me. Uh, melatonin works for some people. There's different like things, you know, try some stuff, try and get that, you know, sleep, get those endorphins, excuse me, uh, uh, get outside as much as possible when the weather's good, get that vitamin D, get it, get some nature. Um, and you know, and just try not, I mean, you're going to have time to sit around and, you know, dwell. You're going to need some of that. Uh, don't rush into dating, take some time to figure out who you are. Also, this is going to be really tough. Um, for the sake of your, you know, your kid, I believe, oh man, yeah, yeah, co-parent. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, for the sake of your kid, you're going to have to, if, if there's a bunch of shitty things that mom did, I don't even know if there are, you just check your ego as much as possible. Make it about the kid, not not about you. And I, and I promise you years later, 
Uh, if you if you can eat some of that stuff, it's painful to time, but you will feel better later. Like uh, not easy to do, but just take the high road as much as possible and always just put the kid or kids first in, in the situation. And people will just respect that. And you will respect yourself more for doing that than if you go down a different path and become bitter and angry. You know, a lot of times the divorce, people can use it as a chance to reset, figure out what went wrong, uh, try and become a better person, use it as a little like, you know, uh, have some humble pie, but, you know, grow from it. Other people just take this angle of like, well, you know, fuck him or fuck her and don't do any introspection and do not grow. And those people, I feel oftentimes are doomed to repeat the same cycle and often just become, you know, miserable, bitter people. Not that I get that vibe from you at all, but use this as a, as a growth opportunity and you have to accept that your life is just different now. And, and the vision you had for yourself, you got to just accept that that's just gone. You got to let it go, which is painful. And again, counseling will help with that. Love you, man. And uh, yeah, uh, I, I really hope more than anything, the, the counseling. Now for a shout out in a Cummins Law situation, newly married Meat Sack, Roger Hayes writes, sub Meat Sacks, I want to say thank you for all the amazing content. I'm writing to tell you about a Cummins Law incident. My brother came over to help my fiance and I spread some bark dust. I thought this would be a great time to turn my brother on a time suck. I asked him to pick cult, serial killer, history, etc. He said serial killer. I picked the Kroll episode. Good choice. I put on my Bluetooth speaker, started this episode. Three fucking times, different people walked by with their dogs. Each time you were doing your cow fucking diary entries. <laughs> ah, we were all laughing, which made it worse. Uh, the looks we got were priceless. Anyway, thanks again. If you read this, I would love a couple shout outs. My fiance and I are getting married this Saturday, the 25th. Patricia, you're the best partner a man could ask for. One more for Aaron and Shoko Galloway. Uh, my friends that turned me on to the whole bad magic universe. Before I go, that'll be five bucks. Ah, good call back to Izzy Uh Thanks, Roger. Well, Roger, congrats on your wedding. Hope you and Patricia have been having more fun with each other than Yahim Kroll had with his sexy cow lovers. My sexy cow lovers. Uh, and thank you uh, to sick fucks. Aaron and Shoko for, for bringing you into this madness. Hail Lucifina to you all. Congrats, congrats, congrats. Um, now for a real quick note that allows me to thank one of our Reddit moderators. Supersack Kevin Cash writes, Hey, mother suckers, I'm one of the moderators on Reddit. If you need anything, let me know. Praise Bojangles, hail Lucy. <laughs> it's been a blast hanging out with Nimrod. Well, Kevin, I just need you to uh, keep our subreddit fun and awesome. I pop in there uh, a fair amount, just uh, peek around. So thanks for doing what you do. Nimrod is so pleased. And one last shout out this week because it makes people very happy, which makes me happy. Super sucker Olivia Myers writes, greeting suck master. Hope this reaches you well. My fiance, Brandon and I are huge time suck fans. He's been listening since uh, started 31 years ago. JK. He has been a Dan Cummins fan for years. Uh, loves your podcast. He even listens to it as uh, to, f- or to fall asleep. He's been doing this so long. It's just weird if we don't sleep with it on. <laughs> I hear I have a decent voice for making people sleepy, which is, I, I would think that'd be horrible for this, but I'll, I'll take it if it makes people happy. Uh, we've been dating for two years, come July 13th, and we met after both coming out of very difficult relationships. We really did just find each other and life has never been greater. He's the greatest thing to walk the earth besides Bojangles. And it's just a shot in the dark, but I know he'd be uber stoked to hear a shout out on the Time Suck podcast. It would be the greatest anniversary gift ever, but I'll have a backup gift just in case. Thank you uh, for keeping the suck going through everything. We wish you and your wife well. Enjoy everything you do do and stand for. Hail Lucifina and have a great day, Olivia. Well, thank you, Olivia. And thank you, Brandon. Hail Lucifina. May she bring so much delight into your relationship. Uh, here are some unsolicited relationship advice. You know what? Uh, respect each other. Don't just assume you're right in an argument. Talk everything out. Compliment each other at least once every single day. And don't phone it in when you fuck. Thanks, everybody. 
Uh, appreciate the messages. Thanks, time suckers. I needed that. We all did. Another Bad Magic Productions podcast has been recorded and will be sent out into the interwebs. Uh, maybe don't try and disappear and start a new life with someone else this week. Definitely don't try and fake your uh, death for insurance money. Just grab that chicken skin duffel bag or, or chicken skin labia satchel. That's mine. I just made that one up. And handle your shit in the life that you do have. And keep on sucking. Bad Magic Productions. And I can take or leave it if I please. I can take it or leave it. The game of life is hard to play. I'm gonna lose it anyway. This is the saddest fucking the theme song. losing card on Sunday late. So this is all I have to say. Yeah, the happiest chorus. Suicide is painless. Suicide <laughs> brings on many changes. Changes as I can take or leave it if I please. Nash, who knew? Not me. Logan knew. I had no fucking idea that. Uh, the opening theme song for that show, the lyrics were so fucking sad. Oh, I gotta, I gotta hit this button before, uh, here, here, here's what, uh, a happy fucking thing. This is what, this is what a theme song for a show is supposed to sound like. There we go. All right. Get your fucking piece of pie, meat sacks. Move it on up. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. At Amica Insurance, we know it's more than just a house. It's your home, the place that's filled with memories. The early days of figuring it out to the later years of still figuring it out. For the place you've put down roots, trust Amica Home Insurance. Amica, empathy is our best policy.